Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Filmcast, a podcast about movies. I'm David Chen, and peace is podcasting about movies. Joining me today is Devinder Hardwar. Don't worry, guys. I do have enough hot dogs. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and, and Jeff Kanata. I'm more of an August. <laughs> wow. <Okay. laughs> Those are, of course, all vague and oblique references to the fact that today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing Todd Haynes' newest film, May, December, which is out right now on Netflix. Uh, I have to say, by the way, as uh, somebody who has appreciated, not always enjoyed Todd Haynes' work, mm-hmm. it's cool mm-hmm. to see uh, one of his movies getting so much attention. This is probably so the much, most so attention, attention. Yeah. any of his movies has ever gotten. Because, you it's know, his I, masterpiece, I'd say. Like His entire career has built to this movie. I remember when Ryan Johnson was on this podcast talking about uh, Glass Onion, uh, Knives Out Mystery, and how he was saying... Wow, it really made a difference that the movie was on Netflix. You know, like he's like a lot more people watched it this time. You know, and uh, I feel like that's happening right now with May December, which is one of the top movies on Netflix as we speak. So it's true. Uh, anyway, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. Do you know what we're going to say? I mean, sometimes the streaming, like uh, you know, uh, monolith, like sometimes it's a good thing when a good thing <laughs> is available to lots of people. Mm-hmm. You have some great conversations. Mm-hmm. It's great. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, you can find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. We got some feedback about our Napoleon conversation last week. Matt writes into slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Hi, all. Share the same thoughts on Napoleon with all of you, especially Jeff. One thing I find fascinating is that the amazing oversimplified Napoleon video, which is at the same time uh, far funnier, far more informative, interesting, and historically accurate, and far shorter then Ridley Scott's Napoleon is available on YouTube right now. So if you search for oversimplified Napoleon, it's this kind of like cool little you know short film that, that oversimplifies Napoleon's life. Anyway, uh, Matt continues, it is definitely worth a watch if you have interest in knowing the actual story of Napoleon's life and impact on Europe and the world and why he did the things he did and why battles were actually fought and the results. I'm going to pause here for a moment. Boy, it would have been great if the movie called Napoleon actually showed those things. Anyway, back to the email. It shows Napoleon as a far more complex figure who is not all bad and not all good either. Also, very much recommend their similarly informative and hilarious videos on subjects such as the French Revolution, the Cold War, the American Revolution, the Civil War, and others. I was really disappointed that Napoleon's story, which I think is one of the most interesting and fascinating in history, was given such a terrible representation on the big screen. I really hope that Steven Spielberg's upcoming HBO series on Napoleon gives it a better treatment. Uh, Matt, end quote. Uh, thanks to Matt for that email. Yeah, that, that's one of the few times, gents, when we've all kind of been pretty negative on a film. Usually at least one yeah. of us will yeah. will be pretty positive on something. Um, but yeah, last week, Napoleon. Took a beating. Uh, not a great not a great movie. Not a great movie, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, I see people so. who love it, too, which is the weirdest thing. But, you know, I'm, I'm interested in hearing why. I think it got like a uh, B- minus cinema score or something yeah. along those lines, yeah. which is like really bad. So... You know, maybe even the people who went, they're like, "Hey, this is going to be great seeing Napoleon, Joaquin Phoenix." Uh, they le- most people left disappointed. Uh, so I don't know. I don't see it doing that well uh, in the days to come. Anyway, uh, you can always write into slashfilmcast at gmail dot com and uh, find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast dot com, and also find us online uh, on social platforms such as Threads and Instagram at thefilmcastpod. We also post our reviews at YouTube at youtube.com slash at the filmcast pod. So check us out there as well. All right. Today on the podcast, we got a bunch of what we've been watching uh, and then some weekly plugs before we get into our review of May, December. 
I have to say, guys, uh, pretty annoying that all the good movies are coming out at one time. Uh, it's it's uh, yeah. Listen, I took two weeks off and I spent almost every night like watching movies because there's yeah. so much stuff to watch. Yeah, it's, so it's much. like they, Too much. And there were like weeks of barren landscape in the movie, mm-hmm. you know, in the movie industry. And then they're just like, Hey, let's just cram them all in. Yeah. I, I so, so much room for Dune part two, by the way, Dune part two could have had a killing in November. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I mean, they didn't want to because of the, uh, who knows what who financial knows? calculations they make, you know, obviously the strike was still going on and, um, they wanted everyone to be able to promote that movie probably. Mm-hmm, uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a little bit overwhelming, and we're trying to navigate it as best we can. We'll probably have an After Dark or two where we review some major release. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's it's just a really weird time of year where all the good movies come out at once, and um, some of which are not widely available to watch, but uh, still demand some conversation about them. So you will hear us covering them right here on the Filmcast. Let's get into it. Let's talk about a movie that is out in theaters right now and that you can watch. It's called Silent Night. It's directed by John Woo and stars Joel Kinnaman. Now, directed I, by I, who? John Woo. Back in U.S. cinemas, one of Incredible. the greatest action directors of all time. Now, look before we begin, uh, before I begin my review of this movie and what we've been watching, <laughs> I need to provide some extremely valuable context. Right, uh-huh. John and Woo sing the entire uh, Christmas jingle too. Jo- John Woo, one of the most influential action filmmakers of all time. Without John Woo there would not be The Matrix. Without John Woo, there would probably not be John Wick, right? Um, I there would may argue, not be a film cast. I, I would like argue we, without we John bonded Woo, over be, those movies, yeah, Dave. I would argue yeah. without John Woo, there would be no film cast. Yeah. Okay, so he is one of my favorite directors of all time, one of the greatest directors of all time, one of the most influential directors of all time. I have watched some of his movies over 10 times. So I'm a, a huge fan of John Woo. Having said all that, this movie is awful. Um, oh, no. Silent Night. No. <laughs> I, I'm going to give the premise away of Silent Night. Okay. So if you don't want to hear the premise, I'm going to, you know, skip forward a little bit. But basically, uh, the at the very beginning of the film, like in the first five minutes, you learn that Joel Kinnaman's uh, child has been uh, slain and Joel Kinnaman himself uh, has been shot in the throat by a gang member, leaving him for dead and leaving Joel Kinnaman's character unable to speak. And there is no dialogue spoken throughout the course of the movie Silent Night. Another Um, one of those. Silent Night. Mm -hmm, That's right. Silent (laughs) Night. Um, And so Joel Kinnaman then proceeds to uh, grapple with loss and grief, and then go on a uh, revenge killing spree. That's kind as of you do, the, yes, as yes. you do in the course of the movie. Now, this is the second movie I think we've seen this year that <laughs> doesn't have any spoken dialogue during the movie. I think yeah. the first one was phenomenal. No one will save you. I think is named that movie right? Yes, yep. so good, excellent movie, excellent movie. Now, uh, I agreed largely with Jeff. What Jeff had to say about no one will save you which is that the no-speaking gimmick of that movie, uh, it was executed completely fine, and it it supported the story. It was thematically useful, uh, but it wasn't necessary. And in fact, there were maybe like one or two scenes where you think to yourself, huh, uh, that really doesn't make sense that someone wasn't speaking in that scene, right? Like That's that's your experience watching No One Will Save You, right? No One Will Save You is great despite the gimmick, not because of the gimmick. Well, I would argue that Silent Night, which has this gimmick as well, is 
pretty much actively destroyed because of the gimmick, right? This is not just, <laughs> oh, there's a, one, a couple scenes where I'm thinking, hey, why isn't someone speaking there? It's probably about two-thirds of the movie. It makes absolutely no sense that no one is speaking, <laughs> right? Um, but he has the whole injury with the throat. Well, yeah. that makes it. See, that th- therefore makes nobody else can speak too. Right. It makes sense that no one else would speak, though. That doesn't make any sense. Well, it doesn't make any sense that no one else would speak, and um, and especially during the early part of the movie, he is, you know he is grappling with the loss of his son, but he's also married to uh, a character named Saya, who's played by. Let me make sure I get her name right. Um, uh, Catalina Sandina Moreno, right? Uh, who I think was uh, the same actress who played Maria Full of Grace. And uh, they're grappling with the loss of their child. It makes no sense that she wouldn't say any words during that process. It doesn't make any no, it's sense. It's just sort of like a respect thing for the throat injury guy. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I get, I, that's maybe, but at least you have to set that up a little bit more than yeah. they did in the film. Um, and what happens is she texts him during the course of the movie. So, you know, mm. and, and I'm like, oh, maybe she's texting him because she doesn't want to lord it over him that he can, yeah. that she can speak, you know, um, but it just doesn't work dramatically at all. Uh, the other thing that's also painful about this movie is, do you guys, you, we've all seen Face Off, one of the greatest action films of all yes. time. Of course. And in the opening scene of Face Off, John Travolta's character, John Archer's son, is uh, assassinated by accident by Castor Troy, played by Nicolas Cage, right? It's a core memory for Sean Archer uh, in that movie. A candid event. And it motivates a lot of his actions in that film. Uh, But I I feel like they did just the right amount of child death in Face Off, which is to say... (laughs) Within the first In the first five minutes, and then like maybe there's like a 10-second flashback later on. There is child endangerment throughout that movie, you know? I I am not exaggerating. There is a good, I'm going to say, 20 to 30 minutes dedicated to the loss of this guy's child. So he, he dies in the opening scene and there's just all these scenes of Joel Kinnaman, you know, lounging around the house, like, mm-hmm. you know, in the son's bedroom, kind of grieving over his son. And, you know, I, I am sure that that is actually what would happen in that situation. But that's but not what you're there for. <laughs> it doesn't make for a particularly enjoyable film experience. I mean, for that, a movie that called is... Silent Night with such a ridiculous premise that has over-the-top action scenes. That's like... the John Wick 1 formula, though. Like, I think a lot of people forget that a lot of the first act of John Wick 1 is is a lot of moping, a lot of sad Keanu, you know, and, and yes. until the inciting event happens. Okay, but, but here, okay, fair point, Devendra, but uh, two responses. Number one, uh, there was still more moping in this movie than there was in John Wick. Okay, <laughs> number two, John Wick had dialogue. Uh, That's true, and so true. that that really goes a long way. I don't know. Maybe at some points it shouldn't have, you know, but, to maintaining yeah. viewer interest. So anyway, uh, then action scenes finally. Ha- I actually timed it. It ha- like the real action doesn't start ar- until around fifty to sixty minutes into this film, uh, into this two-hour-long film, and. Uh, and the action scenes are like pretty good, you know, like J- John Woo is still, still got it, still got it. But in a year that had John Wick chapter four, you know, a movie that heavily inspired by John Woo's movies, you know, in, uh, in a time where we have just amazing action scenes, I think did extraction Two come out this year. Or yes. Like that movie came that out is this, this year. year. Right? Yeah. Right. Like it's just, it, yeah, it's nothing yeah. kind of lives up to that level really. John Woo can still shoot a very handsome action scene, very beautiful use of slow motion. You know, like uh, it looks good. It looks good. But 
this movie, unfortunately, was not really enjoyable. And but if you, if you Dave, asked me if John Wick Chapter 4 came out in 2023, I would have <laughs> put money on the fact that it was last year. No right. memory. Yeah. No memory yeah. at all. It's just it, it so yes. weird. It, it, it has felt both like an eternity and also like it went by really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, Devendra, what were you going to say? I was going to say, Dave, um, listen, I, I quite enjoy Mission Impossible 2. And that is a John Woo movie where it probably shouldn't have any words. Actually, uh, people speaking less <laughs> would help that movie quite a bit, you know, but I still enjoy it. So even even like being a more slimmed down action movie, this this didn't really hit it for you. You know, Devendra, I was really hoping to come onto this podcast today and prove everyone wrong. You know, this has gotten really negative reviews. And my reaction was, oh, these, these people just don't understand John Woo. Matt Fuller Sites gave it four stars, Dave. They, they just don't they just don't get like the the brilliance of John Woo. I'm going to come on mm-hmm. here and I'm going to say this movie's awesome and you don't get it. That's yeah. that was my yeah. plan. And sadly, I found the movie to be mostly a pretty excruciating experience. I didn't I didn't really enjoy. It. I think it's a huge miscalculation to not have any dialogue. It's fine if the main character doesn't speak. That's fine. Mm-hmm. That, that makes mm-hmm. sense. But to not have any dialogue, it just the movie is not dramatically interesting enough to sustain its two hour runtime, in my opinion. This should be a tight 90, if anything, you know, it, this movie could have literally been an hour shorter. It could have mm-hmm. been a short film. And I think it would have been actually much better. Uh, but it's not. It's two hours long. And uh, I think pe- pe- most people will struggle to get through it. Well, you know what, Dave? I can't wait to see it. <laughs> I'm also going to say if your uh, child was accidentally murdered by a uh-huh, stray bullet uh-huh. in a gang shootout then perhaps it should introduce some introspection uh, and you should not then try to go on a mass shooting spree. Like that's, that may be a thing you want to consider as the, uh, as the grieving parent in that situation. And, and that, that's ultimately the problem with, with the movie is mm-hmm. the pleasure of a John Woo movie is watching a badass go out and kill lots of people. That, that is why you watch a John Woo movie. But the real thing this guy should be doing in reality is get therapy. Right and like, <laughs> and grapple with the that's loss every of his child. that's every that's, John Woo movie though. that's right. every movie yeah <laughs> I feel that's like every most movie. movies are like just settle down and go get therapy well, if Sean Archer I mean, got therapy he probably that movie would probably be a lot shorter well you know? I, I would argue that with uh, John Wick and with uh, Sean Archer uh-huh. like at least those characters are in worlds where it makes sense for them to be enacting vengeance on people I you assume know, John, every movie John Wick is, is like in that. the world of assassins uh-huh. and and uh, Sean Archer is an FBI agent. This is just a guy. Like he's just a normal dude. He's not <laughs> he has no special training or anything, you know, yeah. like he's just a guy. And well, so, he's, a, he's a very handsome guy. How right. about that? He's a very tall, he is very handsome. lad um who clearly has the capability of mass killing uh, effectively. But yeah. uh anyway, you, I, you can I, almost I, envision this guy as a sort of a RoboCop as you'd say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could almost say that he is a um, easy money kind of guy. Okay. Wow. That he is a uh, expanse. Was he in that? No. No, for all mankind. For all mankind? Anyway, okay. Uh, that he did this. He went on a killing spree to murder uh, gang members for all mankind, as it were. Nailed it. He Thank went you. on a comma, the killing comma spree. <laughs> <laughs> What was that uh, Netflix show? Altered something? Alter Carbon. Yeah. You might say that the death of his child altered his carbon. (laughs) Okay. 
Anyway, I wanted to love this movie so much, guys. That's I, a shame. I wanted to shame. be like, this is this is a hidden gem. Don't believe the haters. But have you read Matt Solar Sites' review, Dave? Because I will it is that. a really compelling that. review. I haven't read it. I will read it after yeah. this, uh, after this conversation. But anyway, that's Silent Night. It's one thing I've been watching this week. It's it's out in theaters right now, and sadly, I did not like it very much. Uh, let's take a quick break for a sponsor. We'll be back with more of what we've been watching right after this. Hey, it's time for me to tell you about our sponsor, Uncommon Goods. Have you finished your holiday shopping yet? It's time! But don't panic. Don't panic. There's still time to find incredible original gifts with the help of Uncommon Goods. UncommonGoods.com. They have... The absolute best gifts for everyone in your life. We're talking moms and dads, teens and in-laws, besties. You're one and only. They got stuff for everybody. And these are unique and creative gifts, not just stuff you can find anywhere. Uncommon Goods often has handmade gifts from independent artists and makers. So you skip the gifts that scream last minute and find something truly original at UncommonGoods.com. Have you seen some of the cool stuff on here? Some of my favorites are, there's a, uh, <laughs> a hearty pie maker, which is made for camping. You can put a piece of bread, any kind of filling you want, another piece of bread, you fold it over, and then it's made, it's got an extended handle, you roast it over an open flame when you're, when you're camping. So great, so cool, so clever, so fun. They also have a bunch of upcycled records uh, records, vinyl, old vinyl records turned into other things like bowls or wine racks. So many cool handmade gifts, so many unconventional things you didn't even know you wanted. Plus, they've got uncommon experiences, which are more than just virtual classes. They're unexpected opportunities to have fun and connect in new ways from tarot card reading, lunar astrology charting, cooking and mixology classes, crafts, gardening, and so much more. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. Not just the same lackluster gifts you could find anywhere. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back a dollar to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They have donated more than $2.5 million to date. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash filmcast. That's uncommongoods.com slash filmcast for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods. We're all out of the ordinary. Devendra Hardwar, hit us up with something you will watch this week. Sure. I, I saw the thing everyone was telling us to watch this past weekend, which is Godzilla Minus One, the new uh, you know Japanese Godzilla movie directed by Takashi uh, Yamazaki. And uh, th this movie is so good, guys. Like It, it is... It is such a sort of a reboot for Godzilla because it's sort of um, I think it, it technically takes place before the very first Godzilla movie actually happens. Um, uh, it, it's about a, a kamikaze pilot towards the end of, uh, you know, as, as World War Two is ending, as Japan is basically surrendering, um, he experiences the Godzilla attack and it sort of like haunts him. And I this movie is something else because um it, it, it just feels so classically Godzilla. It doesn't feel like Shin Godzilla, which I loved. Uh, we we talked about it. And that was a cool and interesting reboot of Godzilla done in like a modern style through the eyes of Hideaki Anno. This movie is not related to that at all. It is a completely separate story. They're not building a universe like that new uh, Kong Godzilla thing that's happening. 
Um, this is like a standalone Godzilla story. He appears, he, he messes stuff up and, uh, he terrorizes Tokyo, you know, as he does. And I think it is really well constructed. Um, the, the main character is dealing with, um, a lot of survivor's guilt because he is a kamikaze pilot who just didn't basically did not go through his mission. So everybody thinks of him as a coward. He's trying to redeem himself. He's also early on in the film. Uh, he, he experiences, a Godzilla attack on a beach and it's um it's pretty brutal and he again survives that uh this movie has like several Godzilla sequences too like um you could even say it's like several different movies all at the same time um I saw somebody tweet about this but it's very much like one one set piece is Jaws one set piece is a Roland Emmerich you know city destruction movie and one set piece is basically Dunkirk except it's uh you know airplane versus Godzilla and uh you know uh boats versus Godzilla it's a lot of fun. It looks incredible. It really gets the um, the vibe of classic Godzilla down, mostly because it is um, that original Godzilla movie. Gojira is a really interesting reflection of post-war Japan, a country reeling from the the atomic bombings, um, a country that is dealing like trying to figure itself out, but also is sort of terrified of annihilation. And Godzilla has always kind of represented that, like even before, like all the really campy stuff. I think Godzilla as a specter of annihilation and destruction is really fascinating. And they use Godzilla really well in this movie. Like uh, at one point, Godzilla is responsible for killing, I think, like 30,000 people in, in a single attack. And you see it like it is a large scale attack. And it's kind of fascinating how you're also like, well, we're also compelled by Godzilla, aren't we? kind of an interesting dude this guy um what what does he mean culturally uh this movie kind of explores a lot of that i think it's really smart really well uh well made and you should see in theaters if you can because the scale of it is fantastic um yeah this is one of those movies conversation Mm -hmm. this is one of those movies that completely snuck up on me where literally had not heard of this movie two weeks ago, then you start getting inundated by social posts saying, you guys got to watch this movie. You guys got to talk about this movie. You know? Yeah. And so I've heard it's great. It sounds like you think it's great too, Devendra. One question I think, you know, I always have this concern when watching mm-hmm. anything Godzilla related <laughs> is <laughs> how familiar with Godzilla continuity do I need to be? Just... The, well, the beauty of this is that um, I think it does technically fit within a sort of continuity. Like I think it technically does take place before the very first Gojira movie, but doesn't matter. Big, uh, big lizard, big atomic powered lizard, um, you know, attacks and how do people react and specifically how does a society still like literally just recovering from World War Two? How do they face this thing? How do they feel about being used as, uh, you know, as uh, instruments of destruction by the government once again? Like it, it is saying a lot of interesting things about Japan at that time, while also being a really fun monster movie. Very cool. Well, it's mm-hmm. Godzilla minus one. I can't wait to see it. It's in yeah, theaters right too. now. Uh, and not to be confused with this new Godzilla Kong movie. Uh, Godzilla Kong, was it? Empire? Godzilla X Kong. Yeah. The new Empire is the name of the trip. Also, con- don't get confused. There's a, a Monsters TV show yeah, going Monarch, yeah, right now. Monarch Legacy of Monsters. Lots, so, of, lots of Godzilla around. Lots you know? of Godzilla the, the, and, those two are connected continuity-wise. Uh, this one isn't, right. which is yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Monarch Legacy of Monsters and Godzilla X Kong The New Empire are connected. <laughs> they take place in the same universe. Godzilla minus one. Separate universe, as far as we know. Right? Separate so, universe. Also, yeah. they never explain the title. And it, it is kind of funny when, like, uh, anime, it's a very anime thing. Uh, Hideaki Anno <laughs> did the same thing for the Evangelion reboot movies. And the number, it doesn't, I don't know. What does the number mean? What does minus one mean? Nothing. 
It's just cool. Go see Godzilla. Kill people. <laughs> All right. That's Godzilla minus one in theaters right now. Jeff Kanata, you watched a movie this week uh, that is going to be out in a couple weeks made by one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, who's made one of my top 10, 15, 20 movies of all time, Under the Skin. Tell us about the movie you watched this week, Jeff Kanata. Well, I decided all I was going to watch this me- week were movies in German. Uh-huh. So that's what I did. Yes. Uh, as, right. as one does sometimes. Yes. Um, first of all, I'll talk. Mike is Mike in German. Yeah. In German. Yeah. Well, that's not right. a movie, guys. It's not a movie. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, um, but, you know. Thanks for ruining my premise. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Mike Birbiglia. <laughs> a Zone of Interest is the movie you were referring to, uh, which is a movie I went to uh, because it stars Sandra Huller, who is my new mm. favorite actress. Yep. And I was like, uh, I don't know anything about this, but I'm going because she's in it. Going. Um, and uh, I would say 60 seconds into it, I knew I had made a huge mistake. I know exactly why, Jeff. But yeah. Because it starts with 60 seconds of black. It's actually two minutes of black. It feels like an hour and a half of black. It's wasting Jeff's time, you know? You yeah. sit in darkness and you hear, mm-hmm. for two minutes, for two minutes. 2001 does a very similar thing, too. Yeah. Uh, so Zone of Interest, I don't know if people know the premise. Uh, Zone of Interest is uh, basically the, the idea is what if The Office, but it's running Auschwitz? That, it, that is a hell of a summary. <laughs> it frames uh, the running of Auschwitz as a middle management problem. Uh, it's about a family uh, that uh, lives next door to Auschwitz. And uh, the father has to run it, and it's uh, it's a middle management issue. See, it's uh, it's I know it's about the banality of evil, the banality of evil. Yes, get it. Uh, you know, this is a movie that has zero close-ups in it. The movie does not even want to approach its subjects. It won't let you approach its subjects. It will stay far, far, far away from them. It shoots everything from the other side of the room because we can't even approach these people. I get it. All the metaphors are clear. Uh, it, it is, uh, it, it, I did not care for it. Um, I, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hangout movie. It's a mood movie. Uh, but you're hanging out with, uh, I don't know, Nazis, not people I want to I mean, hang out with. Jeff, they're just a nice family in a nice house with a nice garden in a pool. And, mm-hmm. uh, they just want to be together and raise their kids nicely and, uh, exterminate people. That's yeah, Can we just know. exterminate people and swim, please? Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not care for this. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, the movie has a, a number of moments. I, I, it felt very pretentious to me. It felt very. Um, it, 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 I, it, we, we, we may talk about this more later. I know you enjoyed it a lot, uh, Devendra. I know that it's been on a number of best of the year lists. So I may have just, uh, you know not been on this movie's wavelength that's been a common refrain and and will continue to be i think through the end of the year for me um but uh i i watched uh, several terrible movies back and what i uh, perceived to be terrible what excruciating to me movies back to back and then thankfully i watched one that redeemed my love of cinema and we'll talk about that one at some point i can't talk about it yet but 
Uh, this was one of them. I watched this in Saltburn back to back, and I was just like, mm. I, mm. I, I, I may retire from watching movies forever. <laughs> uh, this, this, this was like it just was not my 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 thing. But uh, I'm curious, Devendra, why you loved it. Well, you know what? I will remind our listeners at times, um, friends and uh, great critics like Ebert and Siskel would sometimes vehemently disagree. Oh yes, about some movies, and and I, I'm here to say that this movie is a goddamn masterpiece. Um, and I understand, I understand all your complaints, Jeff, because uh, to to quote the uh, the Family Guy thing, like this movie does insist upon itself, but I think it insists upon greatness in a way that if you are on its wavelength, I think it is. Um, it is something fascinating because yeah, it is about the ma- the banality of evil. It is about middle management. But guys, th- this movie this year we saw a movie in which um, the churches died. Uh, you know, uh, evil was uh, close to encroaching on Earth, and um, it was very supernatural and it was terrifying. That was when evil lurks, and I will tell you that this movie scared me more than when evil lurks because it is about um, it, it 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 is about like what people actually do um this is based on the on the martin amos novel which is very very different but the the kind of essence of it is true that's how glazer tends to adapt things uh under the skin was the same way it was sort of like a, this a spiritual adaptation and not like a direct one um but it does kind of boil down this whole the, the entire nazi campaign as just being like well this guy's very good at pushing numbers around and because of that he's getting promoted you know, he he has done so well running Auschwitz, which is right over the garden wall. Like he has this beautiful villa. The house itself isn't huge, but it's very well appointed. It has a nice garden. It has a little pool. It is sort of like the middle class dream. You look at this thing. Uh, the, the movie starts with uh, the entire family by a lakeside, just lounging and relaxing. And it is both the, it, it to me is the exploration of like, how we do chase this thing. Um, we we all kind of want to be comfortable in our lives. We all want to provide for our families. Um, in this case, and in the case of a lot of Nazi, you know, supporters and uh, officials, they pursued it through through complete evil, through the eradication, uh, through complete genocide, you know, of Jewish people. And this movie doesn't shy away from that. It kind of does some interesting things, how it presents this beautiful, idyllic uh, home but you can almost always hear gunshots in the background or muted screams of people being tortured or ashes in the, you know, smoke going up into the air of people being uh, burned and incinerated. Um, I don't know. I found it really, really affecting and really terrifying. And it's sort of a, it's a very cold film. Like it's a cold and clinical film uh, in the way that under the skin was, uh, but I think I'm just really on Jonathan Glazer's wavelength of what he's providing here. Cause I left this movie absolutely shaken because th- this is like, this is the true evil. This is just what it, people just justify these things because like it provides them a nice, you know, standard of living. A lot of the research he did for this film is kind of in here too. So it may feel a little boring, but I think the the boring aspects of it, the way they can just like have a boardroom meeting, you know, and just like discuss how they're going to uh, tweak the camps and improve numbers. And it's also very much about uh, land acquisition. Ultimately, it's it's about killing. And it's about acquiring resources. But it's just like a simple meeting that everyone has during their workday. I just found it all 
absolutely terrifying and arresting and also looks incredible. Um, this movie does announce itself, like you're saying, Jeff. Like it starts with two minutes of nothing, of darkness. And you hear Michael Levy's score. And it's another one of those Michael Levy scores where it's like, yeah, I, I can never listen to this outside of this movie, right? Because it's it's essentially pure terror. It's almost like uh, they they trapped screams in those scores, uh, in that score. So yeah, it's it's a very specific thing. This movie is definitely not for everyone, but I think if you vibed with Under the Skin, um, you will probably appreciate this. So I hope we have a longer conversation about it. I think it's fantastic. my only uh, my only retort to to all that. I think you spoke beautifully about it, and I'm glad it it moved you so much. It is it is certainly disturbing. Uh, uh, but I would I would retort that everything you described landed on me in 10, 15 minutes. And this could have been a short film and it would have been <laughs> equally as effective to me. I didn't get, a, a, you know, hour and 50 or hour 45 or where, whatever it is. By the end of it, I didn't arrive at more than what I got within the first 10 minutes. It is you immediate, immediately get it immediately and and it like and then i kept going well mm -hmm. what else are you adding to this I, I think you're meant to sit in it is the thing yeah and you're, you're right yeah. it does kind of state its point but then it like makes you sit and stare at these people and their situations and how like their actual problems are you know the, the wife is mad about potentially being transferred she doesn't want to get transferred she has a perfect house and as you know as a parent i'm sure you're thinking about this too jeff like it's a nice house love to have that little countryside villa right like it is perfect and the kids can walk to school and do things like that is a thing that is on my mind at all times like that is kind of a driving force of my life and it sort of makes you understand how like hey, well when given the the choice of like providing for your family really well you gotta do a little bit of evil right just just a little bit evil maybe it compounds and becomes like a, a massive genocide campaign but you have a nice house so it's worth yeah, but it it's right like, isn't that I mean, I, I clearly you got something profound out of this, and I'm glad for that. But it seems to me to be the most obvious point, the most obvious point. And like you say, you, you were forced to sit in it. And I kept mm -hmm. going, "What else do you have to offer me, movie? What else is there?" And it it attempts to do these very avant-garde things a number of times. There's a moment where the, the movie just like stops and forces you to like watch red for a while. And then uh, there's a couple of other things that are shot like negative film, like night vision yeah, yeah. type of thing almost. It, yeah. But like, there's no, it doesn't, there's no added for me. I did not get more out of it than I got. It's harrowing the, uh, like Dave, I hope if you have a chance to see this, you do it in very, very good audio mm -hmm. because as Devendra said, 90% of this experience is the audio. It's not a movie to watch at home, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with, with the sound turned down because you don't want to wake somebody up in the other room. You the audio is It has everything. to shout at you, basically, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, it's very subtle, but it's very, that's, it's very powerful. But like, you know, within five, 10 minutes, I get, I understand that. And there's no more offered, in my opinion. It just felt very redundant and obvious and it, it is making the most it to me the most on the nose of points like yeah these people are awful yeah i mean uh, you they're nazis 
<laughs> you know, it's like maybe maybe that's. I, a, I don't know if it's such a given thing, Jeff. Like, yeah, yeah, I knew you were going to say rem- that. Look, look at what's happening around us in America. I understand and, that, but yeah, in the in yeah. the context of this film, there's no ambiguity, and uh, I don't know. Uh, it just it just I felt like it was a a wasted exercise beyond a certain point. It's just like what what do anyway. Well, I'm really, to... I'm really looking forward to seeing it. This movie will not be out for another like six weeks, mm-hmm. probably. Uh, although it will be apparently in limited release starting December fifteenth. Uh, I'm I'm sorry you didn't get a lot out of it, Jeff. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, uh, jo- Jonathan Glazer's movies—they're not for everyone, you know. And and it's possible you're right about this. I'm I'm no, I, I or fully expect I will agree. to be. Or, I, what, what I mean, not, not that you're right, but I might agree with you about this. So we'll see. No, I fully no, expect yeah. you to 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 love this movie as yeah. well and I, I i i'm clearly the minority opinion because like i said i've seen it appear on a so many top 10 top 20 movies of 2023 lists and i am baffled by that i mm-hmm. just feel like it is uh, i i don't get it all right well that's zone of interest the newest jonathan glazer movie out in limited release december 15th and rolling out uh in the weeks to come uh, and that's something else that uh, we've been watching this week Let's take another break for a sponsor. We'll be back with more uh, and what we've been watching right after this. It's time to tell you about our sponsor, StoryWorth. It's the holidays. Do you want to give your loved ones a gift that makes them feel special and unique? Of course you do. That's the relationship you share with them. That's how you want them to feel. That's why you should consider giving everyone you care about StoryWorth. I did this. I did this for both my mother and my father on Father's Day and Mother's Day. Uh, well, the other way around, I guess it would be. I didn't give my dad, you know, you get it. StoryWorth, what is it? Well, it's an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. This is awesome. It's a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend, a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions that you never thought to ask, like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or, if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? It was so much fun watching my parents, week after week, think about and really put in the time and care to answer these questions. It was so beautiful to see their responses because you can read the weekly stories as they come in. I did. And it that alone helps you connect with your loved ones no matter how near or how far apart they are. Then after a year, StoryWorth will compile all of your loved ones' stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. My kids, their grandkids now have these books to look back on and understand, even though they're too young perhaps now to enjoy them, they'll always have these stories told in their grandparents' voice, their own words to look back on. So with StoryWorth, you can give the ones you love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserve their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com filmcast and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash filmcast to save $10 on your first purchase. I had a chance to watch Dream Scenario in theaters. Uh, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I didn't really go into the movie. I'm so excited. It, I'm watching this tomorrow. So okay. I'm going to pull my Do you know the premise out. of the movie, Jeff? I don't. 
Oh, okay. I'm going to pull um, my ears out and you can talk right, yeah, freely Pull, pull the headphones out for, yeah. for a minute. I'll, I'll talk about the premise. But basically, uh, the, the movie is about Nicolas Cage showing up in people's dreams randomly and then not doing anything. <laughs> so that's the like, pre- like the meme, right? There, right. there was a meme about yeah. people seeing a guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I love this movie. This is one of my favorite movies of the year. Uh, it, it's a great Nicolas Cage performance. Uh, there's many ways you can read the movie, but like my reading of the film is that like the dreams are basically a proxy for fame and Mm. how uncontrollable fame can be. And like when you start appearing in people's dreams in ways you can't control, like things can take turns in ways you are not prepared for. Uh, and I just thought the way that the movie explored it was really clever. It has a very naturalistic shooting and acting style, um, you know. And I just think that uh, just the way in which it explores these ideas that it has uh, are funny and profound um, and gave, gave me a lot to think about personally uh, as somebody who obviously has an extremely small amount of notoriety online. Uh, <laughs> shocking, like staggeringly small. You're, you know? you're really I, wondering what your dream cloud is at this point, Dave. Uh-huh. Dream I'm sure cloud? that's a stat. That, yeah, the, the amount of dreams that you are uh, infesting every night, right? Oh, that's going to yeah, be a stat. That's going to yeah, be a thing. It's, that is true. That is true. I, I, it's something I... Uh, this is a movie think- about dream cloud. Yeah. <laughs> something I think about all the time. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I... I uh, it, this is a movie that just kind of spoke to me directly and about a lot of the stuff that I think about. Um, and yeah, you, you know, I, I think that the role of fame in our society is something that's really um, powerful. You know, like a lot of people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in society, when you ask a lot of kids, like, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? Many of them just say famous. They don't even care. Famous or influencer. What, like influencer, the, the whole right. influencer exactly. thing is about fame mostly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't think people really understand the downsides. And this guy's movies, uh, both Dream Scenario and the other one he made, uh, the, the, the director's name is Christopher Borgley. He also made Sick of Myself. Both of these movies kind of explore uh, what the cost of fame is, like who would want to have fame, uh, and, and like all these things that I think are just really relevant in our modern media world. So... I love this movie. I think it's really well made. And I'm also going to say this. Uh, it does a really good job of showing what dreams are like. It, mm. it does a much better job of showing what dreams are like than, say, Christopher Nolan's Inception. You know, like, <laughs> where his, you know, Christopher Nolan's dreams are like James Bond movies. Basically. I mean, listen, um, yeah, not surprised. But, like, this movie, Dream Scenario, w- like, they show some of the dreams on, on in the movie. And it's like, oh yeah, that's what dreams feel like. Like this mm-hmm. movie captures what dreams feel like, and that's really hard to do. So anyway, uh, big fan of Dream Scenario. It's unlimited release right now, rolling wider in the weeks to come. That's something else I've been watching this week. Devendra Hardwar, tell us about something you've been watching this week. Sure. Um, I got to see Maestro, which is Bradley Cooper's new film. It's in limited run right now. It's going to hit Netflix on December 20th. And I'm surprised how much I like this movie. Because um, I have to say, like the run up to this, the publicity around it, the even the subject matter, like I don't care about Leonard Bernstein. I do, uh, famous guy, accomplished great things, right? I am not somebody who I cares do care. Too by much. the way, I do yeah, care. Love yeah. huge fan of Leonard. I've played his sure, music sure. before. Huge fan. Anyway, go sure. ahead. 
I'm big. Basically, like, this, talk movie's about fame. Waste, this movie's wasted on you. Is what I'm wasted on me. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but yeah, talk about fame. Like this guy was world famous for as a conductor and composer, and I just was never into many of his things. Um, but I think what's interesting about this movie is that it is very much um, another look at like Bradley Cooper trying to make his mark as an artist and it's hard not to like read Bradley Cooper's career into like what is happening in this movie too. Um, it, it's a Leonard Bernstein biopic um, star is Bradley Cooper. It's co-written by Bradley Cooper. It's directed by Bradley Cooper. I have a nice um, Netflix promotion box, you know, for this thing, the LP cover Bradley Cooper. Um, there is a like 100 page hardcover book, beautifully produced Bradley Cooper on the cover, Bradley Cooper, Bradley Cooper. It's all about Bradley Cooper. And I could not help but um, like that. That's kind of the vibe I was getting. And I think he is probably one of the least interesting elements of this movie. Like as a reflection of his career, that's interesting. Um, as an actor, I'm not quite sure because uh, this is a movie that um, tells like the rise of Leonard Bernstein's career um, up until like, you know, uh, all, the, all the way through. But it's really a portrait of his marriage to uh, Felicia Montalegro played by Carrie Mulligan. And this is Carrie Mulligan's movie because it's one thing to be the famous person, right? The person who's so ambitious and wants to achieve all these great things. Um, it's much harder to be the person in their orbit, right? And to build a life around this person, especially somebody like Leonard Bernstein, who, um, you know, lived a very unconventional life. Like he, he had sex with men. He had sex with all sorts of people. And the idea of a monogamous relationship was didn't quite factor into his lifestyle, I think. But at the same time, he really wanted to build a family with this person. So he is a sort of a person of uh, dualities, I guess, and can't help but like look at Bradley Cooper now and being like, it is fascinating that he wants to be this like world-class director, right? And I think this movie is really well-directed. Um, There's some really interesting shots. Like he really thought about a lot of these sequences. Um, this almost feels like Bradley Cooper wants to make his phantom threat. It just feels so luscious mm, and so deep yeah. at times. Um, so that, that's kind of the comparison there, but also Bradley Cooper is still in guardians of the galaxy three. You know, Bradley Cooper is still the guy who wants to be an actor in, um, in big budget movies. Um, it almost feels like his career is going the way of maybe Warren Beatty who wants to both be the star, but also the creator at the same time, right? The, mm -hmm. the director or, at the same uh, time. Sylvester Stallone, you know? Sure, same, sure. Sylvester same deal. Stallone. But it's really, it's, it's, it's the, the Warren Sylvester Beatty. Stallone of our day. He is. Everyone Sylvester calls him our day. <laughs> it is yes. really the Warren Beatty vibes too, because Beatty's movies were good. Like, I think he was a great director at times and a great actor, but also the ego of it was hard to ignore. I think Bradley, the ego of Bradley Cooper in this movie is also hard to ignore. I think his performance is perfectly fine, but also feels like he is working at it. He is working so hard for this performance. Meanwhile, Carrie Mulligan, you know, strolls in and effortlessly, effortlessly just breaks your heart because she, it feels like she's not even trying. It's just her uh, embodying this character. So I really like this film. But I do feel like it is a uh, more interesting to me is the exploration of the marriage and also just kind of how it is a lens into Bradley Cooper's career. I don't know if you guys are feeling this at this point, because I remember Bradley Cooper as the guy on Alias. I've talked about this before. He was the best friend on Alias. That's who he was to me and who he kind of always will be. Mm -hmm. And all these things like A Star is Born and this is like now he wants to be seen as a serious artist. He's trying real hard. 
he definitely tried hard with this movie. So yeah, I'll be interested to hear what you guys think. He definitely tried hard with this movie. That's the, yep. that's the pull quote from David. The Dr- effort I, is on the screen. I mean, uh, it's in star- the makeup. Look, yeah. I didn't love a star is born, but that was a, that movie was a massive success. You know, yeah. it was, yeah, it showed that he too. knew yeah. what he was doing. And, uh, I, I don't begrudge it. I'm, I'm happy to see him branching out and trying other things. And, uh, I, I think he certainly has, I think a star is born certainly shows that he has the chops to make something great. It's like, um, it's like we, so. we also forgot like his big star turn was the bad guy in wedding crashers, mm, right? Yeah, the racist bigoted bad guy in wedding crashers. Like that's how he got his big cinema start. It's just funny. His career is fascinating to me. I, I am. What's annoyed me about a star is born is honestly, I watched the movie and I thought it was like, Oh, that movie's okay. Yeah. I wanted it. I wanted to love it. Didn't like, didn't love it. Um, but I was like, you know, it, clearly very competent. And then to go on and watch, Bohemian Rhapsody win all the awards that year. Yeah, like that was rough. Like that was watching Rami Malek like lip syncing, you know, uh, Queen, and instead of Bradley Cooper, who like wrote the movie and directed the movie and helped to write the songs for the he movie, sung, you know, like he sang himself sang in yeah, the movie, yeah. and it's like that really he that's peed not, on himself, you know, that's not gonna. <laughs> Yeah, this yeah. this one he, he evidently learned how to conduct a symphony. He learned how to conduct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Which There's is a no six small minute feat. like long take uh, yeah. conducting scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not it's not uh well, yeah, yeah. Uh it it is difficult to do it well or or at least to convincingly do it. Mm-hmm. Uh so I'm I'm eager to, you know, I I'm one of those people uh that judges how good the musical faking is whenever I watch it. I think it. you will, he's he will the, totally vibe with this. Yeah, he's yeah, yeah. he's the Tom Cruise of musical faking. <laughs> How how do you because he's do you doing it himself? He's he oh, he yeah, goes yeah. through the process of yeah. having to actually learn how to do it, so you can see him do it <laughs> for right. real, right? You know, e- even though he's faking doing it, right? Uh, yeah, even though yeah. you know he's not really <laughs> driving a motorcycle off a cliff, he's driving it off a ramp, you know. Yeah. But but, well, but uh, there's he's elements, off a very high. Cliff. There's he's elements high that are ramp. real. There's yeah, elements of what he's doing that doing are doing it. He's still the yeah. guy doing it. he's still the guy doing it. He's still the guy doing it. All right. Uh, that's Maestro. It'll be out on Netflix in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Jeff Kanata, what have uh, you been watching this week? Another German film. Uh, this one's starring Mike Birbiglia. <laughs> now, this is a movie all three of us uh, watched, I believe. Yeah. Uh, it is one, again, recommended by our audience. Uh, Good recommendation. I, yeah. Yeah, this was... Uh, this was uh, one this was famously one that Dave told everyone that you could watch on Mubi. Yeah, thanks. And caused, thanks for bringing that up again. Uh, Appreciate thousands that. of new <laughs> subscriptions to Mubi. Yeah, for, thousands <laughs> of new people Mubi owes went us for to that Mubi, one. and yeah. then they're like, "What? What? What? That's um, not there at all." This uh, uh, recommendation came in from Joe from Vancouver. Thank you, Joe. Recommended this to slash film cast. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah. Teachers Lounge, which uh, evidently will be appearing on Mubi in 2024. Um, this is a German film about a teacher, uh, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. It is, it's sort of uh, what if uh, uncut gems, but in, <laughs> but a, in, a, in, a, in a high school, yeah. basically, right? What so if, even yeah. more crazy. <laughs> what if, um, uh, oh, what's the Michelle Pfeiffer movie? Uh, 
where she's a teacher. What if uh, Dangerous Minds? Dangerous, Dangerous Minds <laughs> and Uncut Gems had a baby. <laughs> it would be Teacher's Lounge. And, and a little bit of Anatomy of the Fall dash. A yeah, dash of it. Yeah. A dash of it. The anyway, German part. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and, uh, and other things that I won't reveal. Um, yeah. But yeah, this movie, it's called The Teacher's Lounge, by the way. It will not be uh, in, in theaters and on movie until next year, but we all watched it. And uh, I also liked it a lot. I think it basically... The thing that my big takeaway is how difficult it is to be a teacher in today's environment. So yeah. like, again, yeah, not a not a point that that you know anybody would would guess the opposite of, but right. still, you know, it bears uh, repeating. It's a vivid illustration of that. This idea, to me right? is you know the the tagline uh, of this movie could be the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm, yeah, uh, <laughs> and and I love movies like this. I've often cited a movie I forced us to watch during COVID, uh, Judgment Night. Uh, as uh, as the uh, <laughs> the Judgment Night of teachers movies, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what this is, yeah, for sure. Uh, Judgment Night is the movie that, I, for some reason, latched in my brain as the perfect example of these kinds of movies, which is like, oh, I've got a good idea. The way I, the the best way to deal with this is we'll get off the off ramp here and we'll go this way. What mm-hmm. could go wrong? This will fix everything. Well, uh, and in, in the same way, Teachers Lounge is. Uh, a very, I would think, a decent human being at the center of this tale attempts to be decent throughout and uh, only results in t- bad, worsening and worsening situations. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, which it, I, it, it escalates, like, it yeah. escalates into, like... Just by know. trying at yes. every turn to be a good person. <laughs> Absolutely. No, yes. Nothing, she's not, she's not, like, malicious. She's yeah. not in fact, trying she's to be actively <laughs> thinking about other people and trying right. to be conscientious yeah. and 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 thoughtful and and caring and she's trying to do right by her students and at every turn it's the yep. wrong choice yep. <laughs> you know Absolutely, yeah. and i love i love movies like that where you just feel like oh this spi- spiral is out of control and even though i would have made almost all of the same decisions that she did in those right. moments it-, it just turns out you know disastrously and uh, and it's very it's very fun to watch that happen around her yeah uh, i i would say without any spoilers that I was very disappointed with the very end of this movie just mm. because I feel like they d- didn't know how to end it. Um, we don't need to talk about that in detail, but I don't know if you guys agree with that. I, I really disagree. Liked this, disagree. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I think the ending was fine. You know, I, I didn't love it, but I, I understand why you feel that way, but I, I thought the ending was good. So yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I really like this and I hope people keep it in the back of their mind when it becomes available to watch teacher's lounge in my opinion, one to seek out and uh, and and watch. I think it's it's a small. It's one of those movies where like, it's kind of about small stakes in a way, but that's what's so beautiful about it yeah. is that yeah. you know those stakes escalate. But it's it's really beautiful and and kind of this the small movie that gets to the core of something universal. Devendra, I think you also saw this, and I, my guess is you're also a huge fan of it. Yes? Yeah, I, yeah, I freaking loved it. Um, it is more like I, I would say it is a succession in a high school, mm. basically. Like in terms of the way, honestly, the way it's shot. So certainly it's aesthetically, like, it is. Yeah, it's yeah, like very it's a lot of handheld documentary. documentary style shooting. Yeah, so. but it's about it's about people. Maybe not succession because succession was not really about good people trying to be good. But it's it's <laughs> the similar vibes of like you know it, it is. People having clashing personalities, um, trying to deal with these uh, the weird problems that happen within this like it, it's just a small world, right? We we only leave the school once in this movie. Like it pretty much is all contained in it. So even though the stakes are pretty small and like what they're dealing with isn't like a huge thing, um, it's a big deal for the school. 
you know, and I, I think that was all super compelling. Um, well, yeah, and, I, and also yeah. when you are in school, when one is in school, yes, right, small disagreements feel like epic scandals, right? Yeah. Small <laughs> events feel like, oh, this is the biggest deal that's ever occurred in my life because maybe it is at that point. Right. If you're, especially mm-hmm. if you're a student, not a the teacher. microcosm of that world is everything at that time. Yes. And then it's, yeah. it's that plus office politics. Yes. Teachers yes. too. Exactly. So like, yeah. it, that's all so fascinating. Yeah. 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 So great movie, the great teacher's film. lounge, uh, keep an eye out for it. It'll be available in theaters and on movie in 2024. Uh, let's take one more break for sponsors. We'll be right back with more. What we've been watching right after this. This episode of the film cast is sponsored by better help. It's the holiday season. And my family and I, are doing that thing where we pick names and we exchange gifts and I travel to the different sides of my family and I'm thinking about other people, which is wonderful. That's what it should be around the holidays. But whether or not your family gives gifts during the holidays, you get to define how you give to yourself. And the holidays are a great time to do that. So whether it's by starting therapy or going easier on yourself during tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest. Ah, isn't that lovely? Remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. I certainly have benefited from my time in therapy. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. It really removes the pain points of starting a gift to yourself. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Filmcast today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T. All right, folks. I had a chance to <sighs> go to Las Vegas this week. I'm so excited to and hear about this. And watch you two at The Sphere. Wow. Uh, Very jealous of this, David. I've been wanting to do this so bad. Yeah. Did, did you have the good seats or did you have the cheaper seats where apparently everybody was afraid of falling? <laughs> I wasn't in one of the falling seats. Yeah. But this is Man. one of the... So for those who don't know... Uh, a gigantic LED sphere was constructed in Las Vegas uh, that has LEDs on both the like LED lights on both the outside and the inside of the structure uh, in Las Vegas. And U2 is one of the shows that uh, is premiering. Darren Aronofsky also is doing a short film called Postcards from Earth uh, that's showing there. I really wanted to try to see that, but I just couldn't make it work with the timing. Um, but apparently that's also very interesting. I watched the making of of Darren Aronofsky's short film. And apparently they, you know, they had to come up with entirely new photographic technology to shoot stuff that would be projected on the sphere. Because let me Mm -hmm. tell you, when you go inside this thing, you're sitting inside this massive structure with 16,000 other people. The sphere covers almost like the screen. It's basically a large screen covers almost your entire field of view. The sphere covers all and sees all. (laughs) Why, Why would it be almost? 
Oh, because you can kind of see the edges of the of the mm. like of the seating area, for instance. You know, so mm-hmm. it's not like oh, but it but know. the sphere is all encompassing. Yeah, it it covers like everything above and below, and right, you can right. see the ground. So you're just saying you know? the only yeah. edges are the other people, the other people on the floor. Right. You know? Okay. So, yeah, 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 fair. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, and it is a 160,000 square foot screen, and for Darren Aronofsky's postcards from Earth, they had to shoot in 16K. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they're they're projecting these images at a distance so far from your eye that it needs to be razor sharp in order to not look terrible when you see it. And uh, so, anyway, I go to see U2's uh, Achtung Baby revival. Achtung Baby, one of their seminal albums, just turned 30 years old two years ago. And so their performance at the Sphere is a celebration of that album. It has m- many of the songs from that album. And... There is no other experience like this. I mean, you you if you have a chance to go see it, you should. I will say that the tickets are quite expensive. I spent a little bit over five hundred dollars to get tickets uh, to Good get God. a ticket to this yeah, on the secondary market. That's um, wild. That's yeah. wild. And yeah. apparently, yeah. that was a really good deal because uh, I heard tickets are selling for upwards of two to three thousand. Um, so if you could get it for a few hundred, I would say that's a that's a good deal. And uh, it, there is nothing else like it. They, what you uh, two did. They apparently worked on the show for 18 months. They got all these different artists to design stuff that would go on the screen during the performance. And not only that, not only were they working with new technology uh, because nothing had ever been projected in this format before, but they also had to do it in the context of a concert. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So it's not just like, let's throw a movie up there. It needs to sync with the music, right? And, uh, And it does, you know, really successfully. Uh, it's incredible. I, I was a- actually able to shoot a lot of uh, 4K footage from in- from my seat, and I will tell you that being you you can get a general admission seat, which uh, general admission ticket, which means you're standing on the ground floor. But getting one of the nosebleed seats is also really amazing because you can see the entire sphere and what it's what they're trying to do with the the projection. Um, there are some moments in it that are like breathtaking and incredible. And honestly, uh, I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it almost felt like a religious experience. Mm. It, it, it literally felt like this is what people in like tabernacles felt when they thought they could see God. And, and I'm not because, mm-hmm. because Bono thinks he's God. Yeah, I'm not saying yeah. Bono is God. I'm just saying like <laughs> you are witnessing something that literally your mind didn't think was possible. You know what I mean? Like an image of this size and fidelity Mm -hmm. that is so all encompassing and occasionally beautiful that you just can't even comprehend. It feels otherworldly. It feels like it's not of this earth. I I I, have to ask though, like did did, did you get any fall of Rome vibes from this day? Absolutely. 100%. 100%. Any civilization that is on the verge of collapse typically likes to make a lot of monuments to how awesome it is. Yes. And the sphere really feels like it's right in that wheel. This is us. This is our footprint. This is us, yeah. When when people like, uh, this is going to be like the statue of Ozymandias, basically. This is like, when they see like, why? hey, why did America fail? It's like, this is going to be a sign of it? The single testicle um, in the desert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, I yeah. just wish I didn't have to go to Vegas to see it. Yeah. I have no desire to go to Vegas. There, there, uh, the, see, there is a test uh, sphere yeah, in, in, Bur- in, in California. Yeah, it's yeah. right near it's the Burbank tiny. Airport. I drove right by it this weekend. Yeah, it's tiny. Yeah. It's it's much smaller. It's half. It's only a half sphere too. It's it's much smaller. It doesn't have. I the mean, external... that's still pretty freaking huge. That's still, still pretty, pretty big. Huge. Yeah. 
Yeah, the other I thing that was impressive to me is like how bright the sphere is. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where literally at full illumination, it it literally feels like daytime in there, you know at, yeah. when you're when you're at night. And so I feel like if civilization is gonna fall, <laughs> might as well have stuff like this on the way down, right? That's what Realm said. One hundred percent. I also think. Uh, a couple of other random observations uh, about about the the sphere show. Uh, the imagery is beautiful. It's it's breathtaking. It is not subtle most of the time, right? So there's <laughs> you're not very, there for subtlety. Okay? There's yeah, very I little subtlety. That's like ooh. subtle about it. There was one. There was one song that was really cool. I don't, I don't recall the actual the uh, a specific song, but where the entire sphere turns blue, like you're underwater, and then um, bugs start appearing on the sphere like it's a windshield uh and like like but like you know flies and moths and stuff until the entire sphere is covered with these bugs and then it's like black except with like little specks of blue peeking out from it and that was like okay that's that's pretty cool that's pretty <laughs> that's a subtle and the uh, song was love is blindness that that exactly uh, um wow that's and i was song. like yeah that is a cool idea that's executed really well that's like very nuanced and subtle everything else is really in your face really like aha you know did you, you know and so uh so don't don't go expecting subtlety and, and on that note any kind of class and media critique that might have existed in any of you two's albums just does not make any sense when you watch it in the sphere you know what i mean like it's just like this is the ultimate of we are overwhelming you with sensory stuff. Uh, and in, in one of the most gaudy, uh, you know, uh, con- conspicuous consumption cities that exists in the world. Right. And uh, so to, to the extent that uh, any of the songs that he sang were socially conscious, it's hard to take it too seriously. He doesn't start when you're in with, the sphere. This is for the people of South Africa. Mm. Like I mean, there was advertisement the for uh, product red there, you know, so he's still, they're still doing some good, but. Yeah, uh, U2 at the Sphere would recommend. I think there's a, about a dozen more shows left. Uh, and No, isn't it going through February? Yeah, but it's, uh, that's not that many more shows. It's not like oh, they're doing wow. it every night. Uh, so th- I think there's like 17, 24 more shows, something along those lines, maybe one or two dozen. But, and th- they just announced that Fish is going to be at the Sphere oh, in April. So for four shows only. Uh, I'm really curious because apparently it took U2 about 12 to 18 months to develop this show. And so I'm curious, like... Uh, Fish will just figure it out as they go. Yeah. Right. That's what they always <laughs> yeah. do. Fish will just curious, wing it. Like, like, yeah, I'm curious, like, how... Because they kind of... When I read about it, they said it's it doesn't really facilitate yeah. someone just stro- strolling in and doing a one-night show. Drugs like, will be handed out at the door, and then you go and you, yeah. you vibe to Fish for two hours. But there there is stuff... I'll just say there is stuff in the U2 at the Sphere show that is... So I, I, I literally cried. Like, there was stuff that was so beautiful... I literally cried because I was like, oh, I can't. I really I can't, can't afford this right now, but I really want to do it. <laughs> really want to do it. Uh, it's it's worth checking out because there's just nothing else like it in the world. Uh, but yes, definitely felt some Fall of the Roman Empire vibes, Devendra. No, no doubt about that. So that's you 2 at the Sphere, their Octung Baby uh, tribute. And uh, yeah. All right. Uh, that's something else I've been watching. All right. Uh, Jeff Kanata, hit us up with one last thing in the What We've Been Watching section here. Mike Birbiglia, noted German (laughs) stand-up comedian. (laughs) Um, I am a huge fan of Mike Birbiglia. If you don't know, if you're not familiar with him, 
his brand of stand-up comedy is, I, I think, is is almost a misnomer to use that term. It's more a one-man show than anything else. It's uh, it's uh, you know infused with pathos and and storytelling and acting out and moving about the stage and uh, sometimes props and uh, multimedia stuff. He has a new special called The Old Man in the Pool. And I believe it's on Netflix. It's not on Netflix, right? I think it's on Netflix. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Yep. I uh, eagerly, as soon as it dropped, I I watched it. I'm a huge fan of his. I almost went to see this live, uh, but uh, I did not. Um, and it is, I think, um, typically fantastic. I mean, it is, I don't, I would not put it above uh, some of his other specials, but it is well worth checking out. It's beautiful. Uh, he talks a, a lot about the concept of death and dying, which uh, might be, you know, uncomfortable for some people, but I found it to be poignant and beautiful. And, uh, you know, he, he, he talks, it, it is all sort of autobiographical and he tells stories from his childhood. And my goodness, is he a person who has dealt with a lot of um, health issues uh, it's just so sad. And, and he talks a lot about health issues in this one. Um, but very funny, very funny, uh, but also, you know, heartfelt and poignant and emotional. And um, he's just the best, one of the best at this, at doing this kind of thing, which is not very few people do now, which is, you know, create a, a one person show that's both funny and insightful and you take something away from it and you're moved um, so I highly recommend the newest Mike Birbiglia special, The Old Man in the Pool. Very cool. And uh, streaming right now on Netflix. And that is what we have been watching this week. All right, folks, let's do some weekly plugs. Weekly plugs are part of a show each week where we plug something else we've been making. I just talked about my experience seeing you two at the Las Vegas Sphere. Uh, the reason I went is because I wanted to play in a poker tournament at the World Poker Tour. And if you want to read about my experience playing at the World Poker Tour, I wrote a fairly lengthy post about it over at my free newsletter, Decoding Everything. So uh, subscribe at DecodingEverything.com. Learn about how I did, what the experience of playing at a World Poker Tour tournament is like. C kind of a bucket list item, I guess. You know, I I'd always heard about... <laughs> The World Series of Poker, and I've, as I've you know become more uh, knowledgeable about what's happening in the poker world, there's basically two major poker organizations: there's World Poker Tour and World Series of Poker. I happened to go to the World Poker Tour event this week. Um, I had a great time. I wrote all about it. Check it out at decodingeverything.com. Did, did you come up with a poker name, Dave? <laughs> that's the no, most I important didn't. part. Maybe yeah. that's why. Maybe you could have gone farther if you yeah, had to come up yeah, with a poker I, name. If I got, if how about I how about uh, Lechenfra? Like Lechefra, yeah. Uh, Le <laughs> <laughs> that, that is one of the worst things you've ever said on this podcast, and th you know that's saying. What are you talking about? Uh, I will say that I, I had a great you know time because I, I was uh, playing you know in the in these tournaments, and I updated like uh, this uh, text thread full of uh, some people who were knowledge about about poker. You know, I was, I was running hands by them, and um, my wife was on the thread, and you know, my brother was on the thread, who's very like an, like an expert poker player. And so we were talking about like what's going on during the day, and they were saying that I should have a saying for when I knock someone out of the tournament. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like and, a, like Schwarzenegger style. Right, mm -hmm. right. And so the saying we had agreed on was "Chen you later." 
Uh, I feel like we can workshop that. I feel like um, we can. My wife suggested I uh, when when I knock someone out of the tournament, I say, "Now that's chentertainment. <laughs> that's much better. I like <laughs> not that. Chin up. Yeah. Not chin up. Sorry, guy. That? Not chin up today. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta know chin to hold them, and you gotta know chin to run. In no. all seriousness, though, don't say anything <laughs> to anyone when you knock someone out of the tournament. It's very bad manners. <laughs> Don't be like I showed you. You know, don't don't say that. That's uh, yeah. I learned the hard way. You don't you don't say anything to someone when you've knocked them out and cost them hundreds of dollars. Okay, decoding everything. Doug. Wait, I, I need to know more about this. We we uh, did we have any bad beats? Were there any bad beats? An incredibly, I, I had one of the worst <laughs> beats ever. I'll tell you one of the worst beats ever, Jeff. This happened on my last day. Um, yeah. Uh, I got pocket aces. Ooh. And, uh, so I raise before the flop and then this guy, this guy calls and then like the flop comes four, five, five, right? I, I'm still pretty sure I have the best hand because people are generally not going to call if they have a four or a five, if I raise, right? So then this guy raises and I'm like, this guy's got nothing, right? He's got nothing. So I, uh, call him. Then the next card comes, it's a nine, right? And so at that point we both go all in. This guy flips over jack shit. He's got nothing. He's got nine seven. <laughs> there is two cards in that deck that could make him win, uh, which are both nines. Yeah, and one of them hit it on the river. So he got nine nine on the turn in the river, meaning he got three of a kind beating my pair of aces. It's one of the worst beats. But I showed. I told my brother. He's like that. That was painful to read in the text. Right? Yeah, that's you know, pain, that one of the happen. worst beats. That's one of those things that should not happen. It's virtually statistically impossible, yeah. <laughs> but it's not statistically possible. And that kind of stuff happens, and you can read all about that stuff. He had no business in that hand. Absolutely. He he. he and once he got into it, he should have got out of it. But he did. Yes. All right. Ridiculous. Anyway, decodingeverything.com. All right, Devin, your hardware. Uh, your weekly plug. Sure. I just want to shout out the Engadget podcast. Uh, we've been on hiatus for a couple of weeks, but uh, we'll be coming back this week. And we have our 200th episode planned, so we're you know, we're still kind of making plans for that. But I do want to think about like you know the tech we're looking forward to next year. Uh, check that out at Engadget.com. All right. And Jeff Kanata, your weekly plug? Oh, it's been a minute since I mentioned the fact that you can get your own limerick written by me. Great for a holiday gift, perhaps, or uh, a delightful thing to read around the hearth as your chestnuts are roasting there. Uh, <laughs> the joy it brings is similar to the holidays, which is why have, I bring it up now. Have any of you actually roasted chestnuts before? I have not. I've, I've had eaten, them. I have eaten yeah. roasted chestnuts, I've eaten them. but I have not yeah, roasted great. them. I, I, think, I think my mom used to roast chestnuts back in the day, uh, but I don't think it's very common, right? I don't think it's not like really. a common no. thing people do. No. I, I wonder if it used to be like those, a really popular treat. Those you know? songs are lying mm-hmm. to us. I think it's anyway. like song, song singular mostly. Anyway, all right, go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> uh, the entire chestnut oeuvre, Dave, is what I'm referring to. Oh, wow. Yeah, all the, the chestnuts. The corpus, the corpus of chestnut You know what they works. call those? Uh, old chestnuts. Mm. <laughs> uh, Nailed it, Jeff. Nailed thank it. you. <laughs> Cameo.com slash Jeff Canada. You can get your own limerick. Uh, check out the reviews. There's uh, oh, hundreds of them. Check them out. All right. And of course, we always want to plug... The Patreon at patreon.com slash film podcast. If you want to support this show, help us to do what we do. Sign up for ad-free episodes and exclusive bonus After Darks. Recently on the After Dark, we have covered 
movies such as The Holdovers and Saltburn, stuff that we don't have time to do a main review of here on the actual podcast. If you want to get those episodes, patreon.com slash film podcast. Of course, we never want anyone to donate if it in any way causes them financial hardship. You can always support the show by leaving a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or uh, sharing about the show on your social media. It really does help a lot. I, I'm, I dare say, if you've been listening for a long time and you have not shared uh, the podcast, uh, that is something you're due for. You know, give us a, give us a little share. Share it. And, and actually, I sh- you know, to be fair, to be fair, a lot of people have been sharing their Spotify podcast rap this year, you know, and yeah, very nice. that's been yes. nice. You know, Wonderful some people saying like we're their, you know, we're in their top 5% of or 1% of fans and, um, or they are our 1% of fans and that's very lovely. And, and, uh, yeah, if you, uh, it, whatever way you have of sharing it, whether it's via Spotify wrapped or just a kind word on the social medias, uh, it is all seen. It's all appreciated. Thank you all to everyone who makes the show possible. Let's get to our review of May-December. How do you choose your roles? I want to find a character that's difficult to, on the surface, understand. Were they born or were they made? It's such a pleasure to meet you. You are so sweet. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for doing this. It's so generous. Well, I want you to tell the story right, don't I? You're taller. You look taller on television, but we're basically the same size. We're basically the same. Feels like things just settled down, and now y'all are making a movie. It's a very complex and human story. I think it's hard to trust that you're going to represent Gracie as she was. I'm going to try. Welcome to the film cast review of May December. This movie is streaming right now on Netflix. I'm going to Netflix. Did I say Netflix? Netflix. Netflix. I'm going to read the plot summary on the internet. Twenty years after their notorious tabloid romance, a married couple buckle under pressure when a Hollywood actress beats them to do research for a film about their past. All right, Todd Haynes. We've talked about him on the podcast. Really interesting filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Makes some really interesting choices. Uh, May December, possibly one of his most successful, widely seen movies yet. Jeff Kanata, I'm really curious. You know, you are uh, an actor. You've studied acting, um, and that's th- this movie has so many layers. There is the whole component of older woman getting together with younger student child, mm-hmm. uh, and then on top of that, we call an that addition- the icky part. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, the the additional layer of there's an actor who's trying to come in and represent uh, one of the characters in that story. And on top of that, there is the fact that this is a Hollywood film and therefore Julianne Moore, who plays the woman has already gone through that process that is being gone through by Natalie Portman's character in this movie. So a lot of layers to this thing. We're eager to dive into it, but let's start with overall thoughts. Jeff Kanata, what did you think of May, December? Well, Dave, I guess you could say my thoughts on May-December are best summed up in the form of a limerick. Okay, let's hear it. I wasn't privy to the scuttlebutt (laughs) of this story, which, granted, is nuts. The acting is good, but I don't know what I should come away thinking other than, what? (laughs) Wow, okay, all right. All right. Um... Uh, we talked earlier about wavelength 
And I feel mm-hmm. like this is another movie where I just wasn't on its wavelength. I wanted to. I really love Julianne Moore. I really love Natalie Portman. And I think their performances are engaging and uh, interesting. I ha- I am not a tabloid guy. I don't. I had no idea that this was even referencing something real until Devendra sent us a video. Jeff, you lived through the 90s as an <laughs> I, adult. But I tried not to pay attention to any of that. What? I did my best to avoid. Child, I heard about this, but okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. so Jeff is alluding to the fact that this is based rather heavily, I will discuss yeah. further on later on in this podcast, yep. on the real life story of Mary Kay Letourneau, mm-hmm. yeah. um, who had a relationship and uh, and then got married to one of her students. There was a, I had a, there was a, after you sent that video, I was like, oh, I, vague recollection of something like that, but I just don't, I, yeah. I don't try to hang on to that stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I didn't really pay attention. So I didn't, I didn't even access the movie on that level, which I think is kind of, intended i think that's yeah, i think sure. you're supposed to approach this movie with a a sort of uh uh a, a background of knowledge that i just didn't access in in yeah it's yeah. in it you can you're supposed to be able to watch it with a clean slate and still get something out of it for sure well I so i yeah i i i don't know i <laughs> this there's interesting <laughs> texture there there's stuff going on and like you said there's sort of an a, a layer of um, how does one capture a, a performance? How does one try to to um, portray a real person? But I don't think the movie is really interested in that. I don't think the I think the movie is kind of poking holes in that entire endeavor in a way. And honestly, what you know, as this movie starts. It feels to me more like a detective story mm-hmm. where the detective is an actor instead of a detective. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I thought, man, what a cool idea for a detective story. Like you're an actor and you're going in to portray this real person. Then you find all this juicy stuff, which is not really where the movie ends up because it, I feel like it kind of falls off the rails for me in the third act. And by the end, which we will talk about uh, more specifically, I just, I just came away going like, what? What, 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 what am I even supposed to have gotten from that? Hmm. Which again, recurring theme this week. But um, you know, maybe Jeff, it's just my failure as a intellectual person. <laughs> no, you uh, can only you can only have your honest reactions. I will say sure. uh, that I remember Jeff being not heartbroken, but like very crestfallen when I reported my reaction to seeing Avatar: The Way of Water. <laughs> Yes. You're like, oh, I'm so sad that Dave Chen couldn't have the experience I, Jeff Kanata, had. Yes. Yes. This is my Avatar The Way of Water for you, Jeff. I'm like, uh, in, indeed, this, indeed. I was watching yeah. this. I was like, Jeff is going to freaking This love is Jeff Kanata cat. I was like, this he's is going to eat this up. This is so in Jeff's wheel. This is going to be, he's going to love this so much. Two and people then, in a room talking to each other and, and dramatically. Just, I, I am, oh, I am yeah. sad that you didn't have, you know, the experience I had watching this. You I know? just, um, so. Mm-hmm. I felt like it didn't add up to anything for me. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure you guys will disagree vehemently, but um, I was sort of interested along the way. I mean, it, it is kind of icky and you're kind of feel like, what? and again, I was not accessing it from a, oh, this sure, was sure. real. Uh, it was, it was, you know, it felt perhaps it would have landed differently on me in that case. 
I watched it with my wife because DaVinci was was very. Uh, I was sure Jeff Kanata was going to love this movie. Like that was my that <laughs> yeah, was my I, I all in. I, I, yeah. I would have bet money on Jeff Kanata liking this movie. Yeah, for sure. yeah. That's wild to me. Yeah, that's yeah. wild. What I, did your wife think, Jeff? She was. She fell asleep. Uh, she <laughs> also, uh, you know, I mean, she briefly. She woke back up, and we 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 spent many many minutes uh trying to unravel what the hell the ending was supposed to be telling us mm-hmm. um which we'll talk about um but yeah neither of us thought it was compelling viewing and i just i felt like it was this subject matter was beneath everyone involved hmm. is what i felt okay uh and it just felt like trashy kind of like w- w- what do we what are we trying to say? And I'm sure you guys will illuminate me, but uh, I, I'm i frustrated that uh, repeatedly this episode, I feel like the Luddite who just is not smart enough to get those fancy uh, art movies, which is not usually how I feel. But and, and uh, I, I, hope we, I hope we're not trying – I'm not trying to communicate. Oh, I'm sure you will uh, <laughs> as you begin. I'm, uh, not, but it, <laughs> I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to like make you yeah. feel bad in any way for not getting – you know, like I'm, I think uh, yeah, we, just, we disagree you know, I, on the movie. Yeah, I so. don't understand uh, why people well, like this movie. What, what, I don't understand why people like Zone of Interest. But Where I will – where I'll agree with you is I do think the, the movie is a mishmash of tones, uh, including camp. Like yeah. it's definitely – right from the beginning, it sets your expectations. There's a very – notable scene in like the first five minutes where this dramatic music plays and then julianne moore says i don't think we're gonna have enough hot dogs no she says i don't think we have enough hot dogs dramatic music yeah yeah, dramatic music plays yeah cut to to the guys grilling like 30 hot dogs (laughs) and so it's like there's this whole it's it's a very like oh that's what this this i mean this this movie starts i would say by signifying its tone very similar to to zone of interest actually because it's like you were it's close up on uh was it uh butterflies and uh cocoons and caterpillars, but mm, also the score yeah. is this like relentless thing. It's like it is kind of like a mystery thriller yeah. score that is really in your face mm-hmm. right. that feels so weird for a movie like this. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of thrusts yeah, you. Yeah, but you're right. It, it is playing a uh you're about to see a murder yeah. type score right. under yeah. somebody preparing lunch. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think it's very conscious of the tones it's playing with now whether it worked for you that you know whole different question but uh it I did think not it's, it's not <laughs> <laughs> it's it's certainly playing in a bunch of different uh, modes uh, yeah. at the same time davindra let's hear from you may december your overall thoughts on the movie uh yeah i mean i, I talked about this briefly before but have since the first time i talked about this movie i rewatched it again with my wife, I rewatched parts of it with my parents because they they are into fun melodramas like this too. And I have to say, every time I see this movie, I just get more out of it. I think this is a uh, Jeff. You're asking like, what do you get out of this movie, right? It, it it's like, what what don't I get out of this movie? Like it is it is an exploration of our fascination with tabloid dramas. Like I was aware the story existed. I wasn't like a student of it or anything, but I do remember as a kid thinking that's weird. That's weird that that would happen. And then we would eventually hear more and more about the couple um, over the time. I believe Mary Kay Turner passed away recently. Um, but we would hear, like, they had kids. They raised, raised a family together. I think they separated towards the end. But I would just hear these things like, oh, that is, I wonder how that relationship works. I wonder how that kind of fits in together. And this movie is such a fascinating exploration of that. 
like an exploration of like, okay, what would this relationship be like 30 years down the line? Also, what would it be like for a person who essentially, you know, who was a child? This is a movie about child rape and the word rape is never said once within it. And I think that itself is kind of interesting too, because people are fascinated with people have always been fascinated in the story, but it has been, it's rare. Like people are fascinated, but they also don't, don't necessarily think of the rape word very often because they're like, Oh, he's a, he's a teenage boy and he was really into it. And maybe he, he really wanted to do this. It's child rape because of the age, because he had no, like he could not really consent to this whole thing. But the movie is about like how we, we are more fascinated in the story and the why of somebody, why would somebody do this? Um, It's fascinating that Natalie Portman's character is an actor because she's not, she's not a journalist. Right. Which I think a lot of these stories would be about a journalist or a detective trying to figure mm-hmm. out the story. Yeah. She's not trying to find the truth. She's trying to find a truth, a truth that yeah, she can perform, say, truth. Yeah. that she can perform and kind of embody it, but also use it as a part of her art. Right. It's not about judging this other character for what she did. It's about be- being fascinated by them and uh, wanting to embody them and also use it to like basically, I don't know, keep the commerce going, but it's also, I, 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 yeah. just want, I just want to push back on that slightly because I, I feel like, and we'll get to this in spoilers, but I feel like the ending undermines what you just said. I think I feel, it totally sells it, but hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about it. Yeah. I think anyway. that, that, that is probably part of the thing that at least unlocked the ending for me, but also like that final scene, we will discuss it. I don't think it makes or breaks the movie, but what, what is interesting is the, also this exploration of a domestic relationship where it, it was really uneven at the beginning. It was a big tabloid scandal. How does this child grow up to be an adult? Did they ever really have a childhood? Um, I think Charles Melton is a freaking revelation in this movie. Like I, I have seen before, him before on Riverdale and a couple other things. And he was on Riverdale. He's just like a, he's a bad guy jock, right? He's a really pretty face. Um, for this movie, I think he put on like 30 or 40 pounds to get the real suburban dad look. And I have to say, um, yes, can confirm that's exactly what happens when you move to the suburbs. Um, <laughs> it is very, this, this movie starts with him just trying to like, be like, well, I'm, I'm a dad, I guess. Um, I guess I have to light this grill. I gotta do this thing. It's about a guy who feels like he's trapped in this role in his life. And he's just like trying, he doesn't know who he is. So his own portrayal, I think is so fascinating. And we'll talk about like what happens to him down the line, but there's just so many interesting elements in this movie. Like it is, it is a mystery box. It is so twisty. It often um, implicates the audience too for what we expect we're going to see in it, but also then kind of makes you feel bad about it because like that, that is what we want as a society. Like so many people want the tabloid story. I got so much out of this movie because uh, I, I don't know. I, I think it's incredibly well acted. It's wonderfully well written. The motivations are intriguing and it's kind of getting at a lot too. Like it's we're we'll discuss it too. Like there are racial implications here too, because this was about a white woman in her thirties, basically preying on a 13 year old um, Asian kid in her neighborhood. And now she has a mixed race family. And also there's like a lot of weird power dynamics within that, that this movie also touches on that I think is kind of fascinating too. Um, there is so much like, this is a movie where I feel like there's no fat to it. Every scene I have seen in this movie. Um, I just feel like it's just so compelling to me. This is one of those movies where I'm going to just be thinking about it for a while. I think like it has really stuck itself in me. I'll share a couple brief thoughts and then let's do spoilers for May, December. Uh, I'm I'm kind of on the same page as Divindra on this one. 
I think the acting is really incredible. Uh, the the three main leads, I think, mm-hmm. all do a tremendous job. The primary pleasure of the movie, I think, Jeff, is what you described, is, is in some ways a mystery, but mm-hmm. not even necessarily in just what Natalie Portman is uncovering. It's kind of also, uh, you see a picture of these this family at, at the beginning of the film. And then as the movie goes on, it becomes more and more complicated, right? That's kind of what the jur- mm-hmm. the emotional journey of the movie was for me. Um, and then on a parallel track, there is Natalie Portman's character and you have a kind of idea of who she is. And then as the movie goes on, that becomes more and more complicated as well. Uh, and th- that's what I thought was, was really interesting about the movie, like mm-hmm. very character based, Hey, we think we know these people. We don't actually know them, and we keep getting surprised by what we learn as time goes on. And everyone um, is interesting. The lawyer is so interesting. The the other yeah. family is a whole other pile of drama. Like, oh man, yeah. I mean, I think the the moment that really sold me on the film, like that, I was like, I'm on board, was when Natalie Portman's character interviews uh, Julianne Moore's character's ex husband, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they're in this coffee shop, and she interviews him. And he just gives this incredibly naturalistic performance that's like, that's basically what someone in this situation would probably feel. Like, yeah. there's no like, ah, you know, like there's no like screaming and getting up and throwing things. It's just like, hey, like this is a thing that happened to me. I'm just a dad. You know, I'm and, just a dad yeah. and this is a thing that happened. I think, I think. Yeah, it's been 26 years. I right, think. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think the actor is D.W. Moffat, I think mm. is the name of the yeah, actor. He's great. Was, yeah. yeah. It's just like, wow, like what a. What a like great dialogue, like very subtle performance, very like, I don't understand it. And then later you find out like, hey, the way he presented it is not actually what happens, right? It, it, like it didn't quite play out in the way he presented it. And the movie is all about how we represent things to the public versus how they actually are. Uh, and that question is extremely razor focused or laser focused when it comes to the character of Natalie Portman, who like, now the Portman's character, who obviously her job is representing things to the public in a specific way. So uh, I, I thought there was a lot to get out of it. And, and ultimately there's like some really tragic elements to the movie that we can talk about more later. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's deeply disturbing. Well, yeah, also very, being it's funny at times. It's yeah. so weird. Yeah. So I got a lot out of it. I really liked it. Um, I thought it was great and I'd recommend anyone check it out. Um, uh, but there's much more to discuss. So May, December is the name of the film. Um, Let's get to spoilers for May-December starting right now. I thought up an ending for my book. It makes no damn sense. Compels me, though. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. When I buy a new book, I always read the last page first. That way, in case I die before I finish, I know how it ends. You can't handle the truth! Inconceivable! I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. So we're in full spoilers now. Mm -hmm. Can we we talk about Georgie, by the way? (laughs) Yeah. Georgie is one of Julianne Moore's characters, Gracie's mm-hmm. original children. Original right? children. Yeah. Played by Corey Michael Smith. And everything about that character is so fascinating. Like that scene where you're introduced to him while he's singing. I believe that's at the Crab Shack, actually, too. The weird thing about this movie is that it takes place in a lot of places I visited or meant to visit too. So it just, feels Oh, so these great. are actual, it, these it, are it actual places in Georgia and it, it, Savannah. And it looks yeah. like they shot in Georgia, right? Savannah plus Tybee Island, which is interesting. Cause it's like a little enclave and that's where I usually spend summers. But, uh, that whole scene is just really fascinating because it's the lawyer talking about the story. It's like, Hey, have you met Georgie? And his portrayal of who this kid is of 
somebody whose life was essentially ruined by this entire scandal too. I, I just can't stop thinking about it. I think that's the thing. Like I'm fascinated by every element of this movie and the portrayal of Georgie is, is one of those things too. We only had yeah. get him in a couple scenes, but man, what an actor. I mean, I, I think the, the core emotional journey of the movie mm-hmm. um, is uh, Melton's character realizing that he has undergone mm-hmm. trauma and irreversible damage, basically, right? Like, it's, that's, that's, it's him realizing, like, they have convinced themselves that everything is fine and this is the way it's meant to be. But then, like, as the movie mm-hmm. goes on, he's like, wait, actually, this is pretty messed up. That, that's the core journey. And that really worked for me. Jeff Kanata, I'm curious, like, did that work for you at all? Or did you not find that sufficiently interesting? Or, you know, like, what do yes. you think about No, yeah. I, I mean, obviously the metaphor is manifest with the butterfly, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's a little bit know, on the nose. On the a nose. little bit on the nose. But you know what? That scene, that scene where he releases the butterfly and the daughter comes in in the background and it's just like, that it's a beautiful thing that is on the nose, but also incredibly beautiful. So I, yeah. it's one of those things. Yeah. I felt it was on the nose. But <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, on the uh, nose, yes. The, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is um, a harrowing notion, mostly because I feel even, you know, more for, for his children than him. Like, his children are now mm-hmm. in this weird limbo place of, uh, it's, it's, it's an awful situation. And, um, you know, I, 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 I was baffled a bit by, the moment where um, Julianne Moore, you know, confronts Natalie Portman for the last time, mm-hmm. and she says something that seemed to me to be perfectly obvious and benign, and is played by Portman like it's this gobsmacking uh, revelation. And um, that's my wife and I talked about that for almost an hour, just trying to figure out like what 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 was supposed to be happening there um anyway but yeah to, to, to let, let's talk qu- let's talk about yeah, yeah answer my question but i want to talk about that scene but why don't you answer no i think yeah, I, yeah. I i do think that's the most successful thing in the movie is seeing him wrestle with this life that he has lived that he thought was intentional and uh you know made with autonomous decisions mm-hmm. <laughs> that he has come you know subsequently realizing in retrospect maybe weren't autonomous weren't that rooftop scene with his son and his son looks at him when he when he's like i i've never had i've I've never smoked marijuana before and the son looks at him like really yeah like you you never you didn't have a childhood because of this whole thing yeah i think that's finally like weighing on him yeah yeah Yeah. i think for me the line that conveyed that most is when natalie portman said this this is what adults do mm-hmm. you know yeah. which yeah. it isn't but also <laughs> some adults uh, do yeah. manipulative people do yeah. yeah yeah i mean that my biggest problem i don't mean to be jumping around thematically uh, I, I you know i feel like i am but i feel like the movie does a bit too anyway um my biggest problem with kind of what the way you framed it davindra is that I don't think ultimately the movie is saying that Natalie Portman was looking for truth. I think the movie is ultimately saying she was looking to be exploitive just like everybody else. And that that, that, that is the truth I'm talking about. That is, she's looking for the thing to exploit for her art and she's using him in the same way that, you know, Gracie used him. I just don't think that has, that has any relationship with truth. That's, that's her. I mean, that last scene we see her performing in the film 
is a complete goofball scene. Okay, it's okay. Like, let's let's mm-hmm. let us let us take a few things in sequence. Okay, yeah. like let's take them in sequence. Natalie Portman's character uh, has sex with uh, Char- is it Charlie yeah, Melton? Charles right? Melton. Char- Charles Melton's character, right? And uh, right before that happens, he hands her a note that uh, his wife wrote to him when he was a kid. When he um, was a child. And yes. it's really amazing to like compare that note versus his like pieces Coca-Cola on a hot summer day note. Like one is like a yeah. very, you know, written Adults. like an adult and one is yeah. like a child's thing. And so and that's by like the way, a, Portman's reading of that is unbelievably. Yeah, good. I was I was mm-hmm. about to get to that. I was oh. about to get to that. So so uh the one thing I wanted to note is like you notice like during that entire scene when she's having sex doing whatever, like she just wants to look at the note. She's mm-hmm. just like, I'm trying to get at some kind of emotional truth that I can use for this movie, right? That's what she's trying to do. Then we see her actually delivering the speech. Uh she's just reading the note. It is incredible. It's a tour de force performance, the highlight of the movie, in my opinion. Right. It's uh, agreed hundred percent. It is like, wow, this is acting. This is the truth that Natalie Portman was trying to get to. That a Natalie single continuous to to take of yes. one monologue. It's Straight incredible. To yeah. I think she did it like eight times or something along those lines, mm-hmm. you know, like, and there's nothing in the background. There's no, she's yeah. just hurt. She's lit. She's dressed like Gracie and that's it. And just straight to camera. Is she dressed and, like Gracie? A little bit, I think. I think she's kind of, yeah. I don't know. But, uh, I, my reading of it, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. My reading was that it is not, not part of the film that she is making. Correct. No, correct. She's, yeah. that's like a rehearsal yeah, yeah, to just, herself she's just in like the hotel room. practicing or doing yeah. it herself. Yeah. Which yeah. juxtaposes, but, I think, with the, the yeah. farce that they actually are making. You know, like that's a yeah. moment of this actual kind of raw truth that is disconnected from the thing. Mm-hmm. That she ends up actually isn't making. that the process of Hollywood though? Like a, an actor can go in with the intentions to be as emotionally truthful as they want, but yes. they they are not the creator. They're not like they're one piece of this machine. And yes, it does look like a farce. That that ending by the she is trying to do something. They think they can move on. The entire thing looks ridiculous. But what well, one that of the is things the that's great? Yeah, yeah. One of the things that's great about the movie is how so, sorry I didn't mean to cut you off from here. But one of the things that's great about the movie is like how subtle it is about illustrating who these act, these characters are in the universe of the world. We know that Natalie Portman's character is Juilliard trained, but we kind of get the sense that she's not super happy with her career. Mm-hmm. Uh, she may not be making the best. Movies, she seems to be trying. doing like a Grey's Anatomy show, but for dogs, like, <laughs> and I think at one point we also learned that she has a people's choice award. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, she probably isn't like quite getting the roles that she wants to get. Um, and, uh, and I think that kind of feeds in that that's another layer of like, what is she trying to do here? She's trying mm-hmm. to like, she's reaching for something beyond what she's been, been able to accomplish. In the is past. she an Oscar and, chaser looking right, for and, that role or and something? And that makes yeah. the final scene even more tragic when we kind of see this whole movie, this whole like hour and 40 minutes leading up to now is her trying to like, I got to embed myself with this family to get at this truth. And then it's like, oh, it's a, it's schlock. It's like, like, and we see a schlocky version yeah. of the story already. Yeah. We see a made-for-TV schlocky version, right? And we this see, one and just it's, looks it's like a, just like it's just like that. Yeah. It looks yeah. exactly the same. This one looks you know? a little better. The budget it's looks a little, a little yeah. better, but a that's little, it. it's not yeah. as bad. But yeah, it's like it's it's also bad. Yeah, Jeff, you disagree? I, I, I my reading of it was very different in that hmm. I never had any sympathy for 
Natalie Portman's character at all. She felt like. Well, I never said I was. Sympathetic. I never said something. Yeah, when you said she it was tragic. A, I that I felt yeah, that sure. implied. She, she is a. She, in fact, I think the thesis of the film is that acting is inherently predatory. Like that's that's what I think hmm. the movie has to say about the art form is like it, that in some way when you are pretending to be someone else, you are extracting something from that person that they cannot get back. That's that's my take from the. So I was not sympathetic to her at any point. Uh, she seems like a horrible human being. Yeah, no, that's why you know, Why yeah. I, I felt like it was less speaking about something universal about the process and more something specific about mm-hmm. this terrible person and mm-hmm. these terrible people. I think that's one of the things that I was most frustrated with about the movie is that the circumstances are so specific that I didn't feel like I gained something universal out of it. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. o- oftentimes you get universality from specificity, but in this case, it was like, this is such this, re- this, this May, December relationship is so wildly out of the ordinary that it just didn't feel like it spoke to something that I could relate to or that anybody can really. And, and I also felt like, you know, and Natalie Portman character was so specifically self deceiving and narcissistic and you know uh like the entire endeavor was malicious but not because acting is malicious not because you know not what you said and the way it landed on me was not because it was some universal truth being discovered it was more that man these are awful people bumping into each other right i yeah i i feel i feel differently I, i'm not saying i agree that acting is inherently malicious but right. i think the movie's point of view mm-hmm. is that there's something in, in, inherently predatory in what natalie portman is doing if natalie portman was like a uh super stand-up human being and didn't have affairs with directors and so on it would still be bad what she's doing mm-hmm. like i think that's mm-hmm. kind of what my perception of what the predation movie was trying to say. is a big part of yes. what this movie is about it's like you you see yeah. somebody who has less status and less power than you you deceive yourself into thinking that it's fine what you're doing and then you extract the value from them that you are looking for yeah. right like, i'm thinking of that get scene what you want, right? that scene towards the end of julianne moore where uh, first of all follows the wonderful breakfast scene uh, after the very on the nose butterfly scene. I love that thing. It makes me tear up every time. Like uh-huh. that scene of the kids together with Charles, Charles Milton's character without the mom in orbit, without her ego kind of sucking up the whole room and them just relating to each other. I thought was incredibly sweet. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of gets a sense of like what these kids don't have when they're at home and why the son is so eager to leave, why they're all eager to leave while the girl, the daughter in college is like very happy to be away from the, this toxic relationship. Um, but after that, we see Julianne Moore and Forrest. She has a shotgun. She has two dogs. She's out there. We don't know why she's hunting. She confronts a Fox. And I don't know, like, that's another thing I'm trying to like get a read on, but I almost wonder if like, here I am, I got a freaking shotgun. I've got two dogs that can take out this fox at any moment. I have the full like resources mm-hmm. of of being a predator behind me. I'm going to take out this thing. Why? Like it, it is. And I, then she decides not to. I believe she decides her. not to. Yeah, yeah. And that almost feels like a weird conference of weird like recognition or at right. least like yeah, recognition yeah, yeah. of like what she did because there is that great scene of them in the bedroom. Where she's like, who was, who was the boss? Right, and, and actually, him. and as yeah. you as you sent this clip, you know, the the, the uh, actual uh, Mary Kay Letourneau was mm-hmm. interviewed on Australian television, and uh, spoke like 
I didn't understand how closely it was based on I her didn't know this either. Until yeah. I saw the clip, and it's like, yeah. oh, Julianne Moore imitates the way she speaks, and also the phrasing. I have a, actually a clip from that interview right here. You were the adult. You can say that. I am saying that. I was by age. I was by age. And Let's by maturity. Ah, uh, you maybe. You were a teacher, Mary. <laughs> you can't matter. say I was immature. But you don't know him. No, but I don't need to know him in this discussion. He's the child. Who was I'm the talking boss? about you. Who was the boss? Who was the boss? What? Who was the boss back then? You know, then? there was me pursuing you. But... Who was the boss back then? <laughs> this is ridiculous. No, this is who ridiculous. was? Who was? Just say. Just say. Who was the boss? All I knew was what I knew back then. But who was the boss? He was 13, Mary. But who was the boss? This is getting weird. Who was the boss? That's we all know the answer is Tony Danza. <laughs> Just say Tony <laughs> the true, Danza. The true boss. The first time I saw this movie, actually the first two times, didn't know that was a real conversation. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, but now it's it like, also yeah, they, they, they almost yeah. lifted dialogue straight from that interview and put it into the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Jeff, you know, there's a scene in this movie where Natalie Portman is looking at photos of Asian boys mm-hmm. and she says to her director- uh, Audition tapes. Audition yeah, tapes. Yeah, audition tapes. She's like, not sexy enough. Not you know, sexy like, enough. Now, is that because Natalie Portman specifically is terrible or is it because there's something inherently dehumanizing about the casting process in general? You can well, decide, but for me, it, well, it's like th- this is the process <laughs> of making a movie and being an actor. It's the absurdity and, of telling yeah. that story. Yes. Right? The absurdity of like, well, this 13-year-old has to be sexy yeah, enough they have to, be sexy. to compel a 35-year-old woman. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. What are you going to say? I mean, I, I, the only thing I would push back on is that I think there is – a method of going about researching a role like that, that is, that maintains a level of human decency and respect that Natalie Portman's character does not engage in. Right. There is the reason why I don't feel like it speaks to a universality of it is Mm -hmm. that there is a way to go about that. That isn't as predatory as this, right. That doesn't, that doesn't, insert yourself into these people's mm-hmm. lives and insinuate yourselves into situations that you don't belong in. But I'm wondering, Jeff, like, are you asking for that? Like, I'm wondering, what do you think the specific mode she chose here? No, no, no. I'm saying she's awful and it's awful. Therefore it doesn't apply to acting in general. It, it's I, not I necessarily I, saying right. I, I, <laughs> my, my read was not that it was speaking about a greater truth about how we sort of, tell these stories it felt to me so specific to the Mm -hmm. way this person is doing some people Mm -hmm. do that though like that's not this is not like an isolated thing just to that character like it is not uncommon for somebody to go and try to find a true story and try to amp it up like we're in the true crime era where any like little story is trying to be beefed up into a podcast series or a netflix series i just that is the thing yeah natalie portman characters crimes here such as they are uh are so egregious and so out of the norm mm-hmm. to me that it felt like, well, hmm. she's terrible. Not the process is terrible. Sure. Do you, does I, that make sense? Yeah. It, it, does ma- it does make sense. I think Divinger and I don't agree. That like, makes right. sense. Divinger and I yeah. look at Natalie Portman's character and we, we're like, oh, that's like a fairly that's common like thing. That's a lot of people. Then you know, she like, could also yeah. be a reporter so. who's trying to get a story, a big story for right. her cover page or something, and that is similarly predatory. Um, yeah. I, I, mean, I don't think it's uncommon, like what she's doing, basically. Uh, there's this um, uh, uh, book called The Journalist and the Murderer. Um, yep. And it's about how, like, the, the opening line of The Journalist and the Murderer is like, you know, uh, any journalist who's like, let me see, let me see if I can get this line. Um, 
because I think it's a good one. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like uh, every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. Yes. That's the opening line of the journalist, the murder. And it's like, it's kind of this indictment of like, like a journalist who's studying a murder and like, like that there's something like inherently extractive about that relationship. And that's kind of what I felt about mm. May, December, regardless of how terrible Nella Portman was. But it's, again, it's okay if you don't agree. Uh, I, I want to make sure we get back to this scene though, mm-hmm. uh, because I think it is confusing, Jeff. Uh, the scene where they meet at, at the graduation. As the movie goes on, we see kind of Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. Like Natalie Portman's character takes on more of the characteristics of Julianne Moore. She's like, slowly transforming, dressing into her. like her, yeah. and like wearing the makeup and the hair like her. And then when they meet at the graduation, it's like, oh wow, like they're really similar looking. Mm-hmm. There is an article in USA Today that tries to address this this scene because um, it is confusing. I agree. I was like, what? What, what am I supposed to make of that? I'm going to read from this article. It says, in the film's penultimate scene, the woman have one last encounter at Gracie's kid's graduation. Feeling content in her preparation, Elizabeth soon begins to second guess herself when Gracie asks, I wonder if any of this will have really mattered for your movie. Gracie then reveals the lies that her son, Corey Michael Smith, told Elizabeth, meaning that she never actually got the full truth. Julianne Moore said, for me, the most salient point is, do you understand me? Do you know me? I think that for actors and for all of us, you can only get so close to knowing another person. That's what's so wonderful and frustrating about being human. You always want to know more and you're always trying to get in there, but there's always going to be a little piece that's so mysterious that just belongs to that human being, end quote. Then it says, suddenly insecure, Elizabeth scrambles to find something real on the set of her movie, now done up as Gracie with a blonde wig and pink lipstick. Elizabeth asks to shoot yet another take before the screen goes black, end quote. So my interpretation of what this article is saying about that scene is that Natalie Portman's character at that point feels like I've got this all sewn up. I've, I, mm-hmm. I, I've already yeah. done the scene. I figured scene. you mm-hmm. out. Yeah. I figured you out. And then Julian Moore comes in with like a dropping a bunch of truth bombs. And then there's a scene where like the camera pulls away from Natalie Portman where she like, I think tries to like imitate like Julianne Moore in that moment. And then the next time we see her, she's on set and whatever truth that she's gotten has been lost. Right. She's trying to grasp it, but she's it's nothing close to what we saw with the previous monologue. Um, so that does that kind of make sense, Jeff, as an interpretation for that sequence? You think it does? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I agree. I, I was also the first time I watched it. I was like, "What?" And then I had to go it's, online and read about it. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think I think we are meant to assume at the end. Like, I, I mean, here's here's the reason why I thought you might like it, Jeff, because haven't you ever while acting? felt like you achieved something that like was transcendent mm-hmm. and then like failed to ever get back to that moment. Like there's one night in the show that was like mm. amazing. And then you failed to ever get back back to that moment again. That's what I feel like the ending of this movie captures, you know, mm. like she, she gets it. She's like, Oh, I'm in it. I'm in it. I'm doing the monologue. Everything's amazing. And then never again, like nothing else that comes after that is even close to that. Interesting. Um, that's not yeah. how I. That's not how I. That landed on me at all. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't take that. That's an interesting take. I, you know, I certainly was blown away by that monologue. Yeah. Um, and like her leaning back at the end, I think is, yes. is supposed to be that like so good. I did it. I I got there. I found something. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of the things I just want to mention. I like how uh, Julianne Moore did her best Asian mom impression when she like completely destroyed her daughter's self-esteem. Um, yep. <laughs> where she's like, she basically 
said, hey, oh, it's so brave of you. That's what you want to, when you tell someone yeah. they're yeah. brave for wearing an article of clothing, you know? Yeah. Um, there's this entire Brave for showing your arms. Yeah. Shot in, in a mirror, which is just such a weird, disorienting Beautiful. way to shoot it. And then she says, you know, oh, it's so brave of you not to listen to like modern beauty standards. And you see throughout, she's like always controlling her children's lives in like different yeah. ways. The daughter you know? goes and changes to a shirt with sleeves, Yeah, by the way. And then so, cut to yeah. next scene, Julianne Moore is wearing a sleeveless dress. You know, like yeah. it's very, there's like all these subtle ways in mm-hmm. which you learn about how yeah. Julianne Moore's character is like emotionally manipulating all those around her. Right. There's yeah. a... <laughs> Candace Frederick over at HuffPo, I think, wrote a really good piece about just like the idea, too, that this was a white woman taking advantage of a young Asian boy. But now she she is part of a multicultural family. And it's weird how. I don't I don't know the the value judgments or the beauty standards of whiteness, I guess, are like a part of her conversation, too, about not showing your arms because she thinks her daughter's arms are a little too flabby or giving her other daughter a scale because Mm. she's not skinny enough. And it's always um, making her son eat more because she thinks he's too skinny and she thinks he's not going to look tough in school. He looks completely fine. He looks fine. He's fine. fine. The kid is just like, get me the hell out of this house. (laughs) Love that kid too. Right. But like that is, that is another perspective here of like Gracie has no conception that these kids may be, maybe living different lives outside of her co- own cultural understanding too. Like yeah. that's another part of us. Yeah. Yeah. Another layer. Yeah. So anyway, um, I think that's, that's most of what I wanted to say on, on the movie, Jeff, I hope you feel like you got a fair airing of your thoughts. Yeah. As yeah, well. yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and Devendra as well. But I think, um, yeah, I, I got a lot out of this movie. It's a movie that like stayed with me. Yeah. I, I think I had a much different reaction when I finished it. I was like, Oh, well that wasn't a particularly satisfying ending. It stays, but, with but then it stayed with me. It was like, oh, yeah. and like replaying all these scenes in my mind. Um, Almost every day since we saw this movie, my wife and I have like a conversation about it. You know, I got a yeah. That was like me and my wife with Anatomy of a Fall. We talked yeah. about it for for days afterwards. Um, I got to give a shout out to Charles Melton's performance shout at out. the gra- at the graduation ceremony. I don't even know if they shot it on the same day and location because I don't think you ever see him in relation to those characters. But his children are graduating, and you see him you know, walking along this fence and he starts breaking down and crying. And it's like, yes, he could be crying because his happiest kids are graduating, but it's also probably the weight of knowing that he never had a normal childhood. And that yeah, was yeah. take, it was something that was taken from him. And it's just like, I can't get that rooftop scene out of my head too. Like his yeah. complete breakdown there of yes, a very probably accurate interpretation of somebody trying, you know, weed for the first time, but also <laughs> it is the facade just falls away. Because he doesn't mm-hmm. have the strength to put it together. Like yeah. he never had access to this thing. And just his breakdown there yeah. is something, yeah, that's sticking with me quite a bit. Also, um, shout out to the kids who kids are, uh, so good. Are, are, yeah. are in this movie. Like both of Julianne Moore's character, Gracie's sets of daughters, mm-hmm. or uh, children, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like an extremely realistic mix of like how these children would end up. Like mm-hmm. um, her uh, kids with, what's his name? Um, Charles Melton's character are mm-hmm. like really well adjusted or like they seem like really normal. You would, if you met them, you wouldn't know that this tabloid yeah. national story happened in their past. And that's, that's what kids would do. They would move on. They would like adjust and adapt and this is normal life. And you know, and they'd have some trauma and unpleasantness, but yeah, like they wouldn't, it wouldn't present just like if spending 20 minutes with them, you know? Uh, and I thought that was a very kind of nice, realistic touch to this. So. The, the scene where they, the both families meet, at dinner 
Oh man. That's Just the that, only unrealistic thing about this is I don't know. Wouldn't you move like far like far the hell away from any of these people like if you were involved in any of that? I, you know that's, like That's true. Yeah. But also like she is again Gracie as a character is fascinating because she is like she has never accepted any guilt of like yeah. what she did was wrong too. Like she there's a point where she says, you know, I was always naive and maybe that that was a good thing for me. And then at the graduation scene, is it she's content or she is like she is firm in what she believes. She doesn't really have any doubts about her past is the thing. So mm-hmm. yeah. fascinating is somebody who's resolute and she did nothing wrong. Why, you know, yeah. why is yeah. this a scandal? Yeah. At no. no point does she like have any remorse at all. So, and nobody, nobody in the film calls her out for it too. It's more like subtle things in the neighborhood. Like when they go to the flower arranging scene and Gracie's like, I'm going to show her a good time. The flower lady's like, I bet you will. I bet you will. I bet you will. I bet you will. So anyway, all right. Well, at the end of the day, it's really impressive that Todd Haynes made a movie. And that's going to bring us into this week's episode of the Filmcast. You can find more episodes of this podcast at filmcast.com. Email us at slash filmcast at gmail.com. Patreon.com slash filmpodcast is how you can support this show. And uh, of course, we want to give a shout out to Tim McEwen, who wrote the theme song for the podcast. Check out his band, The Midnight. And also Noah Ross wrote the Weekly Plugs music and the spoiler bumper. He also edited this episode of the podcast. Next week, it's going to be the next slash latest slash last question mark Miyazaki movie. The Boy and the Heron is out in theaters next week. It should be a really fascinating conversation. I've heard uh, the movie is interesting. Interesting. Uh, Mm -hmm. Potentially strange and weird, uh, which is also always the kind of stuff we want to talk about here on the podcast. So, Anyway, until then, the boy in the hair next week on the podcast. See you later. Bye. Bye.